All right, hello everybody. Um, today I am with Dr. Lydia McGrew. Um, Dr. Lydia McGrew is the author of a book, a relatively new book, The Mirror and the Mask. And you also have another book, oh, I'm forgetting its name at the moment. The Eye um, of the Beholder. The Eye of the Beholder. And uh, would you like to maybe just introduce yourself a little bit more about yourself so our audience uh, understands? Sure. So my name is Lydia McGrew and I am a uh, analytic philosopher pretty fairly widely published analytic philosopher. My PhD is in English. Uh, right now for one more year, I am a homeschooling mother. I'm in my last year of homeschooling. So last school year of homeschooling. And I am a writer of New Testament research now in the last few years. I've begun doing that as well while continuing to work in philosophy as well. I'm also the wife of philosopher and apologist, Dr. Timothy McGrew. And I'm, I'm the homemaker. I, you know, keep this place together and running around here at the, at, at the homestead, at the McGrew homestead. So that's basically who I, who I am. And I'm always working on something. It might be yeah. an article. It might be video. I've recently started a little uh, YouTube channel where I put some of my YouTube videos and I'll be trying to have some more of that content as well. So I'm, I'm always trying to do something new. Great. Uh, well, it's a good year for uh, a last year for homeschooling. Mm. Um, mm. I think the, a lot of people are uh, homeschooling uh, sort of uh, by lack of choice, I guess, today. So, Well, um, I've been doing it for... <laughs> um, you know, 20 years or more. Wow, so that, I've been doing fantastic. it all along. That's great. Um, so, so you're well-practiced as opposed to a lot of the newcomers, although I'm sure there's probably a lot of people asking for your help and, and questions and support and stuff like that. I have gotten, I have gotten some questions and I feel for people who are in a sense caught in between because they're really just doing virtual virtual public schooling, which really isn't the same thing as homeschooling because yeah. they don't have a choice of, you know, they're the worst of both worlds, <laughs> how to do it. I think they're getting the worst of both worlds. I really do. I feel for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, what I wanted to talk to you about, so Dr. McGrew is an expert on um, the reliability of the gospels and sort of understanding different philosophical approaches for um, understanding the authenticity and reliability of testimony and even probability theory and how that sort of works into that and how that can work into us understanding the reliability, the authorship and, and the, all of those sort of related issues around the gospels in particular. And so um, that's something that you have been focusing a lot on, I think, especially recently. And that's what I wanted to sort of have be the main topic tonight. And then, of course, we will eventually probably get to how that relates to the topic of Christology. Um, but I think before we get there, there uh, I didn't fully realize this when I started wondering if you might be a good guest for my show, but there, I, I sort of stumbled into something of a, a philosophical spat or argument where there is um, uh, you and Dr. Lacona and you guys kind of have, you know, a, a satellite of allies on, on either side have been talking a lot about um, what you might call literary devices or um, sort of, I, and I guess I'll ask you to go into this, but basically, it, are the Gospels historically reported to represent true facts to the best of the author's ability, 
or did the authors have some amount of liberty and artistic license to maybe change it a little bit or to dress up the story in certain ways and so sort of what's the border between that and being historical where, or that and starting to fictionalize and fictionalize and deviate from the facts. And so I, I've had to do a fair amount of homework to catch up on the details of this debate and the weeds are pretty deep, but, but it's, a, it's an interesting question. So um, I thought that it would be helpful maybe if you could sort of explain what historical devices are and how people like Dr. Lacona and some of um, his um, people who agree with him define them and how they relate that to how they understand how the gospels were written. Sure, and, and I think as they themselves would present it, they would say that the gospels are in a particular genre where the authors had this historical flexibility in how they reported the facts, and they would usually say that they had flexibility concerning details. And so they would use the word details and the examples that they will most spontaneously give in public presentations will uh, indeed usually be things that would be thought of as details. So uh, recently, for example, Dr. Craig Keener was giving an interview and he gave us an example that in one story, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand and then Luke says that it was the man's right hand. And so Dr. Keener's own spontaneous example of flexibility was that Luke might have made up that it was his right hand and Luke didn't really have any source for that. He said he might have had another source, but we don't know, but that would have been the kind of thing that they would have felt that they had flexibility on and, and that's a detail. Um, the range, however, of what is taken to count as details is very broad to the point where uh, Dr. Lacona and uh, Dr. Dan Wallace, for example, have said that John invented the saying from the cross, I am thirsty, I thirst, and the saying from the cross, it is finished, and that he was, in a sense, we might say, inspired by a completely different saying, uh, I thirst would be his uh, drastic reworking of, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that would be uh, something much stronger. Or, for example, Dr. Lacona suggested that some of the apparent discrepancies in the resurrection narratives might arise from the idea that John moved Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. Well, when you look into what that would amount to, that would amount to John's having crafted that whole scene. Uh, it would have to because it, it's supposed to be a conflict between John and Matthew. And if Mary Magdalene was with the other women, who saw Jesus in Matthew is just a completely different set of circumstances. They've already seen the angels that are joyful, whereas Mary Magdalene is weeping. She thinks he's still dead and then sees him and she's alone and so forth. Completely different circumstance. So if John quote unquote moved it, I would not call that a detail. I would call that inventing an entire scene. So even though the way they'll initially present it as details, then when you get into the details of their own views, they do end up suggesting a number of things that are broader, but that that supposedly was allowed by the genre and the conventions of their time. That would be their model uh, and their claim. Right, and so they talk a lot about this genre of Greco-Roman biography and that there was this idea that there were sort of standards of the time and they even go so far as to say that there was sort of like manuals that maybe people would learn in school about how to, you know, 
um, tell a story for dramatic and sort of rhetorical effect, and that this was something that was understood by both author and audience mm -hmm. in terms of a way that you could and probably should tell a story if you were giving a kind of biography of the matter. And so I, I guess the question, I'm sorry, I'm catching a little off guard. I didn't prepare you for that question, but um, so the, the question would be is exactly how do people like Dr. Lacona and, and his allies understand the, the genre and what sort of license that may have given authors? Well, it, it varies a lot. They themselves will say that it, it that it's a wide genre and that some people are on the more loose side and some people are on the less loose side and so forth. Um, and it's kind of surprising to see just how far it goes. And then basically what they end up doing is what I call discrepancy hunting. They simply go to the gospels and if they find something that appears to be a discrepancy, they immediately say, oh, maybe this was one of these, you know, literary devices where one of the authors changed it. Um, I, I don't want to take us, as you said, you know, far off into the weeds. I've done a huge amount of work and people can find this in my uh, video series and my book. All of that about the manuals is wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, I argued at great length and carefully, it's wrong on every single level. The, the gospel authors probably didn't even have any acquaintance with those manuals with the possible exception of Luke. The manuals didn't even teach what they're saying they taught. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the audience would not broadly have been acquainted with that. And once again, the manuals weren't really teaching what they're saying they taught. They've radically misunderstood them. And then to make it even stranger, Dr. Lacona doesn't even claim to have found in these manuals many of the ver various literary devices that he himself is claiming. So it's not like he can say, oh yeah, that's discussed here and that's discussed here. Many of the things that are most prominent in his work, uh, like, like um, moving the day when something happened or whatever, he doesn't even have a like a chapter and verse that he claims is is in the manual. So and he and he says this explicitly in his book that he's uh, that historians it's in the realm of informed guesswork. So um, there is a, a misunderstanding sometimes that that they're claiming they could just you know read out of these manuals. Oh, see here it said, and when you are writing history, you are allowed to change when things happened, and you are allowed to. And they don't say that. Um, and the and they wouldn't have been trained in this, and so there's just a lot of problems with that thesis, and it gives I think a false air of uh, or a faulty air of objectivity to the claim, as if there's all this independent evidence that we can just go out and find and read, and well there it is, so Lydia must be wrong, and it it's just not like that at all. It's highly highly conjectural instead. So. Um, that's kind of where they think they're getting it from. And then as far as where the gospels fall in this, they just basically go by how many differences they think they find. You know, yeah. so then when you have a gospel that's that appears to be or is taken to be a lot different, like John, then it's like, oh, well, then he must be using a lot more of these devices just because he's different. So it's uh, it's very I, I guess I would say it's a, in a way a kind of an a priori approach that you you conclude that that's what they're doing and then every little difference is attributed to that and I, I don't think that's a, a, 
a good historical approach. Sure. So I think that that a good analogy that that you have in the book is that we Americans or modern Westerners are relatively used to the idea of a movie being based on historical events, mm -hmm. where a movie might be mostly true, it might be uh, have feature real characters, or perhaps a mix of real and non-real characters, mm -hmm. and be set in a certain date at a certain place, and uh, to track events that might be famous or, or something like that, whether it's a war or you know a famous person or what have you, but that Hollywood writers will often take a little bit of liberty with the script to make it a more exciting movie, but they'll often do things where they will do things, put things in the movie that are strictly speaking not historically true, right. and and I think an important distinction that you make is that like certainly every writer has to make choices about what they're going to include and not include and how what they're going to focus on and not focus on i could say that yesterday i went to mcdonald's and had dinner with some people or i could say yesterday i went to the mcdonald's on the corner of main and first street had a big mac and a large fries and hung out with my friend joe and talked about politics and those are, it could be both two things and right. And for a different audience, I might tell a different story for a different purpose. But then there's a distinction where it moves beyond just the author making some editorial decisions about what to include and what to focus on to actually changing historical facts of the matter, such as either putting words on the mouth of the wrong person or making up words and inserting them into the mouth of a person changing the chronology of events, um, changing location of events, and all those sorts of things, which cross the line from being, you know, factional, factually true to non-factually true, and that the literary, literary device theorists seem, seem to blur that line. Yeah, they, you know, when you read enough of their stuff, you can find that they really are saying what you've just, I think, aptly summarized. Um, but then there's a lot of wrangling about terminology, and I find this very tedious. Um, they become offended at the word fictional, and I, I define it. I'm like, this is just a descriptive term. This is just a descriptive term. This isn't, you know, uh, an insult. I mean, like, I, I like a lot of fictional movies, you know. Yeah. I, I like a lot of even semi-fictional movies, so I'm not trying to insult anybody, but it just is what you're claiming and I define it out. And so then we all get kind of hung up on terminology. Um, so then I tried to change it to fact changing. I thought, well, maybe the word fictional is triggering people or something, I'll change it to fact changing. And then in Dr. Lacona's recent video series, he even objected to that and it was very odd. Um, so it's this weird feeling like we're not allowed to call things what they are, or we have to use euphemisms or something, which to me bogs the conversation down. But the fact of the matter is that Dr. Lacona himself has made the analogy to a movie based on true events. That isn't even originally my analogy. That's originally his analogy. So, the, I mean, this is definitely what, you know, what he's saying. And the interesting thing is that when you watch a movie like that, you know, it, it's well done. It's realistically done. So if you want to know whether those things really happened that way, you have to like go look it up on a website or something to right. find out. And so you can't tell just by watching the movie. And in the same way, the theory is that even the original audience could not tell just by reading the gospel. They, they you know, and but then the idea is they didn't really care. Okay. But where else would they have looked it up? 
I mean, right. it's like they had some website that was going to tell them. So it would have really very significantly altered even their ability to tell what really happened in Jesus' life. Like, for example, where did Mary Magdalene meet Jesus? And mm -hmm. did she have that dialogue with them and so forth? They, they might have been unsure. So at this point, we get brought in this theory that ancient people didn't care. Like, we're hung up, that we care. They didn't really care. I would actually, if anything, reverse it. I would say, if anything, we're a little more cynical. And they were a little more... <laughs> you know gullible or, or whatever yeah. word you want to use and uh we're sort of like oh yeah i know politicians all lie or whatever you know but um you will actually find a lot of harmonization going on in the the ancient church fathers um with the exception of origin but he is an exception uh and you'll origin is an exception on many things <laughs> he is he is and you'll you'll even find um what are sometimes called harmonizing scribal activities where a scribe might, you know, write in some words from the synoptics or something. It, it, you know, you can actually tell that he's done that. And again, I think that shows this kind of almost more literal mindset than, than what yeah. we have. So I anyway. think that's a very good point that you can see early Christians um, st starting to wrestle with these questions and, and virtually none of them say seemingly what Dr. Lacona and them say that, oh, you know, hey, people, a thousand years from now, chill out. You know, we, we have this standard where we can, you know, uh, take a little bit of, you know, uh, en enjoyment in, in and making some, you know, literary flourishes to help make our stories more exciting. Um, but I think, like, when you think about it, like, for a movie based on true events, there isn't a banner that pops up at the top or bottom of the screen when it's like, oh, this part is actually not true, but you know, keep enjoying the movie, folks. Mm -hmm. And so like, you can imagine someone coming out of the movie thinking that they had learned a decent amount of history. And the thing is, is that you know, maybe they have, maybe they see Titanic for the first time and they, they learn a lot about the Titanic and the mm -hmm. size of the boat and you know, the different you know, classes and how they lived in different compartments and all sorts of things. And then you tell them, well, there was actually no person named Rose on the boat you know, or, or whatever. And, like, <gasps> and then the weird thing is, is they, they suddenly, they won't be able to know which of the details that they've learned from that movie are true or false. Right? They'll Google it, it. They'll Google it. And there's suddenly this base level of suspicion that creeps in on the whole thing where it's like, oh, well, I thought I learned this, but maybe I'm, I, I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that there is something deeply acidic about uh, epistemologically about the idea of insisting that, that the authors can change things without you or the other uh, original readers knowing unless you're able to cross-check it with something more reliable. That's absolutely right. And this is one distinction that I make as an epistemologist between that, that view, that literary device view, and an honest error. Yeah, so you yeah. think about it, if somebody makes an honest error, we have a kind of a baseline idea. And I know you mentioned you're a statistician. So, you know, we have an idea of how often people who are close to the facts and are trying as hard as they can to get it right, make an honest error on a particular kind of thing. You know, and it might depend on what kind of thing it is, how hard it is for them to remember or whatever. And that is not as acidic. It's yeah. not nearly as acidic. And I will ask people to put themselves imaginatively on a jury and uh, someone is being cross-questioned and he says that an event happened on a Wednesday. Then he's cross-questioned uh, by the uh, other lawyer, the opposing lawyer, and the opposing lawyer forces him to admit that it really happened on a Saturday. Like he, he shows that it contradicts some other witness on the stand. 
Now, okay, now the scenario diverges. First scenario, the guy says, oh my goodness, you're right. I am so sorry. I remember now, you know, it was a Saturday, but several of those days of the week were similar. That's why I forgot, etc." okay? In scenario two, the witness says, oh yeah, yeah, I, I knew it was a Saturday. I changed it to make it a more interesting story. Mm -hmm. How, which of these would more radically change your view as the juror of everything else that that guy said? Right. Obviously, obviously, yeah. the second would have a more radical effect. Why is that? Well, because we know that, that, I mean, just in general, if you're trying to get it right, you're more likely to get it right than if you're actually not even trying to get it right. I mean, it's just sort of basic mm -hmm. common sense. So um, that's why, even though I myself am not an inerrantist about uh the, the Bible, I am, I, I regard my view as inerrancy friendly. And yeah. I tend to get along really well with inerrantists because they like it, first of all, that I just outright, if I think something's an error, I just call it an error. I don't try to call it something else. And so they like that honesty. But then second of all, I think they can see the way that these literary devices actually cast a, a much wider doubt over the details in the Gospels even than my personal views do. And then thirdly, they can see that when I defend the reliability of the Gospels, they can use all that stuff that, that I say, right? They can use it. They're just going to defend even, they're going to go even farther with it. Right. And I think that it, like you said, inerrancy is the elephant in the room. You had a, a chapter or a section on that right at the beginning of your mm -hmm. book, which I, I thought was was very good. It seems like a, a big, uh, something at the root of this debate is the, um, the idea that scripture being inspired by the Holy Spirit will need to be absolutely true by some definition or another. And that there are these problems between the Gospels, you know, what day of the week did Jesus get crucified on? And, you know, uh, did Jesus uh, cleanse the temple during Holy Week? Did he do it three years earlier? Did he do it twice? You know, those sorts of things that cause, you know, how did Judas die? You know, a, a couple a of <laughs> that's, you know, Bart Ehrman's favorite. Um, and, and so there are those sorts of difficult questions where it's like, well, either... I need to do some difficult harmonization on some of them. And there's kind of a spectrum of how harmonizable some of these things are. So either I need to be able to harmonize every single last one of them, or I need a slightly different understanding of what it means for these to be true. And what I think Dr. Lacona and the literary device theorists are doing is trying to say that God works by the standards of the time and that the standards of the time had these literary devices, you know, see these kind of ancient uh, rhetorical manuals. And so therefore we can cut them slack or something like that. And that we can attribute these errors to the intention of the authors as opposed to being perhaps mistakes of the authors. It's astounding to me that that is appealing to someone who calls himself an inerratist. It, it just... Every time I come back to it, it astonishes me anew. And so, and then I'll meet, I'll meet with someone like uh, Phil Fernandez. I have an, a two-part interview with him. He's an old-style inerrantist online. And I feel like I've come back out of the twilight zone into the world of the inerrantists that I've known all my life. I was raised by inerrantists. I went to an inerrantist Bible college, you know, and those were 
the other kind of inerrantists, no. <laughs> okay, where word magic doesn't work on them, all right? Mm -hmm. And you go, this isn't an error. These aren't the droids you're looking for, <laughs> you know? <laughs> these, aren't, these, these are literary devices. And they go, these are literary devices, you know? No, they go, yeah, it's still an error because the information is false, you know? Because mm -hmm. that's what, you know, that's what they care about is whether the information is false. But it's like, um, you know, like some thing where somebody's walking along and he trips and he goes, I meant to do that. And is it better if he meant to do that? Well, the milk is still on the floor. Okay, so there's this weird idea that if we just call it something different, if we just say it's not an error, it's literary device, shoo, you know, I can still hold my, my, my inerrantist card. And that just, I, I can't get over the fact that people would rather do that then either A, harmonize, B, call it an error, or C, say, I don't know. Right. I mean, you don't think there was ever a time in Norm Geisler's life where he said he didn't know? I'm sure there was. They're all of the most famous, most diehard, old-fashioned inerrantists have had those things where they're like, you know what, this is a difficult one, and it might be this, it might be this, it might be something I haven't thought of yet. And that's not being mysterious. Scientists do that all the time. Scientists mm -hmm. all the time have theories where they're like, you know what, I don't, I don't know what the explanation is of the way that particle behaved or whatever. So for whatever reason, people do not want to take those, any of those three options, they'd rather call it a literary device. And then they feel like they've got this kind of magic wand and they can just wave it over all of these things. Uh, and then harmonization gets a worse and a worse rap which I think yeah. is, is, is not good historically either. So yes, I think, you've, I think you've pegged it and that that's a lot of where the appeal lies at least to evangelicals. Right, that you can, you, can peg, you can kind of funnel your definition of what it means for the Bible to be true or the word of God through the intention of the author. And then we can kind of move these, this literary device idea into what was possibly the intention of the author. And, and that, but then it still has this troubling effect that I think that you are right to absolutely pin down mm -hmm. is that there's a difference between a fictionalizing literary device and a non-fictionalizing one. Yeah. It's one thing, and I, I guess here's another thing that we could talk about is on um, paraphrase, mm -hmm. right? Because this is an important concept, right? Because there are, you know, speeches, you know, there's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. And they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. And, you know, well, maybe it was two different sermons. Well, it seems quite likely. And maybe it was just sort of a general milieu of Jesus gave the same sort of speech over and over and over again. And they're, you know, giving different versions of it. But could you talk about, you know, sort of different understandings of paraphrasing and how that, that fits in with this discussion? Yeah, and it's interesting how a confused presentation of the literary device view can actually lead to a kind of a straw man of my view. Okay, mm -hmm. so if you say, if, if someone presenting the literary device view says, well, I'm just saying that it was possible to paraphrase, that the gospel authors may have paraphrased, and Lydia McGrew disagrees with me, well, what does that mean, right? That means Lydia McGrew thinks it was not possible for the authors to paraphrase, which is not true. So, um, we need to think in terms, I believe, of recognizable paraphrase. And so I give some examples that I make up in the book, The Mirror of the Mask, where I say, you know, someone could say 
something about, I'm not going to try to quote it here, you know, but about how he, he doesn't like the city council and so forth. Um, I give this little thing, suppose this is what Bob actually said, and then suppose that I report that this is what Bob says. And when I report it, some of the words are somewhat different, but I haven't changed the setting. It's like, nope, you know, this is really if I say that's when he said it, then that's when he said it. And if you had been there, you could have recognized it. You, you could have said, oh, yeah, that must be, you know, what she told me about or whatever. You know, like if you saw a video or something of it. Mm -hmm. um, so re recognizable paraphrase is different from a kind of a, a, a strange concept that would not normally be called paraphrase at all that I alluded to earlier when I talked about I am thirsty and my God, why have you forsaken me? It, it's it's just not a paraphrase. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't care if you put a fancy, you know, Latin phrase on it, ipsissima of ox, the very voice. This is not even on the face of it the same meaning. I am thirsty. It's literal. It's supposed to be he actually was, you know, thirsty. In fact, in John, they go and they the, get the Roman uh, guards understood what he meant. <laughs> right. The people go get they go get wine, sour wine to give him and so forth. Whereas, my God, why have you forsaken me as a you know, profound theological thing and people debate, was the son really separated from the father on the cross and all this stuff, you know, or was he just quoting uh, Psalm 22 or maybe both? So they don't even on the face of them appear to mean the same thing. Um, to call that paraphrase, I think it's going to really confuse people. So there's that. But then we also get things that fall in between those. So, you know, one of those that I was talking about obviously is paraphrase. And Dr. Lacona will talk about, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed versus, you know, the kingdom of heaven is a mustard seed. Or say, you know, these itty bitty, mm -hmm. you know, trivial, trivial differences that obviously fall within recognizable paraphrase versus the I thirst. But then there could be, you know, something in between. So like I literally saw somebody online today, he was trying to make the gospel of Mark vivid and Mark uses the word uh, immediately a lot. And so um, this person was saying, so let's say that that's like, boom. So when Mark says, and immediately Jesus did this, let's, let's uh, give that as, boom, Jesus did this. Boom, Jesus did mm -hmm. that. Now, he was being very self-conscious in bringing that into a modern idiom, changing immediately to boom, you know. And that, you know, that falls somewhere in between. Right. I mean, it's obvious that Mark isn't actually saying boom, you know, yeah. but we can we can get that, you know, we can get. So Adam says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You you could give something that you might actually call a dynamic equivalent where uh, Adam, if, if we imagine Adam is saying, I am. Um, you are part of me. Mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, you are a part of my my very self or something. It's got a more modern sound, but it still falls within recognizable. And one of the things I talk about is that there's a philosophical problem called the beard problem. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Sometimes it's called the sorites, which is the heap. So you start out with a grain and you add another grain and you add, and when does it become a heap? Or a man mm -hmm. hasn't shaved and he's, okay, he's got five o'clock shadow, but two days later, we might say sure. it's a beard. And yeah. then it's like, it's on a quasi continuum. Yeah. Where we have a problem is where somebody says, because you could put these on a quasi continuum, there are no clear cases. So yeah. because you could go on a quasi continuum from an absolutely trivial verbal difference over to making something up or it's just obvious you're making something up does that mean 
there are no clear cases because there's some sort of gray area in between. No, it obviously doesn't mean that. And we recognize this in all sorts of practical matters of daily life. In fact, the law could not be applied. You know, what's speeding? Is going one nano thing over the speed limit speeding? Oh, maybe not. Well, he's going 10 miles. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we try to call it on the, the clear cases. So that's what I do with paraphrase. I say, well, whatever else paraphrase is, that isn't it. And um, yet, of course, I would acknowledge that the gospel authors, because they wouldn't have had a verbatim memory, paraphrase Jesus' words. Right. And so a thing that, that is sort of in this gray area on the, the spectrum mm -hmm. is that I think that even people who have just read some classical literature, like even if you've just read, like, say, some platonic dialogues, right, we sort of imagine that that Plato is after the fact, maybe putting words in Socrates' mouth or, you know, or, or whoever else's mouth to kind of, you know, make them perhaps even sound smarter than they could be on the spot and to kind of maybe almost like make them be a, uh, a better version of their argument than, than sort of a natural human being might be to the point where it's manufacturing speeches and probably giving them a lot of words that they didn't say. And then, you know, and Plutarch seems to do similar things and Plutarch seems to be right in the middle of this debate. And that, that's sort of one of those things where there does seem to have been a lot of classical precedent for giving a protagonist and maybe even an antagonist uh, a speech to give or a dialogue to have that is sort of in the spirit of the person, but not very, you know, I could have gone back in time with a tape recorder and found that speech. Well, speeches and dialogues are somewhat different and we do need to distinguish them. I actually think Plato's dialogues are a little unusual in that respect. And also they're hundreds of years prior to the gospels. Right, yeah. um, they're also highly philosophical and so forth. And I think they look kind of artificial right on their face, frankly. Um, I have a whole discussion in the book I'm, that's with the publisher right now, The Eye of the Beholder of the Dialogues in John, and how, how different from that they are, how realistic they are. The people insult Jesus, they go off topic, uh, they, they jump from one topic to another, Jesus insults them back. Uh, it's, it's not like a platonic dialogue at all. It's actually right. pretty, nitty, pretty nitty gritty. Or it's um, not even like Justin and uh, the dialogue with Trifo, right? Where, which is a Christian no, I document. I Trifo existed, you know, yeah. Right, right, where that one seems to be self-consciously imitating a, a platonic dialogue, it, I would yeah, say. It, it yeah, it might be. Yeah, I don't think he was necessarily trying to get you to believe, you know, in the actual existence of, of, of Trifo even, you know, it was mm -hmm. a representative Jewish dialogue. But um, as far as speeches, then that's this whole thing, and I have a chapter on that. Um, when an author invented a speech, there were authors in ancient times who invented a speech. It was a chance to show off his rhetorical chops. It was a, it was um, like an exercise in, in being a really good speech writer. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so they're set piece for one thing. They're they're clearly you know set apart from you know and and he said you know and then you know, it's a big long thing. Um, Discourses we have, even in the Gospel of John, don't look like that. They mm -hmm. don't have that kind of appearance as being uh, rhetorically trained. There's no appearance. In fact, when people talk about Yoenin style, it's sometimes forgotten that Yoenin style isn't all that good. Yeah. I mean, it, as Greek, okay, mm -hmm. it's simple, 
it, it uses fewer conjunctions. It tends to be choppy. And it's so blunt. Yeah. Blunt, yeah, that too. Short, short, you know, shorter sentence structure and so forth. Um, so the last thing it looks like is a highly trained rhetor showing off his chops. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, That's a good point. And so then the other thing we, we want to notice too is that a ancient author who did make up a speech would then maybe have much higher standards for the surrounding factual material. So he, he would like Tacitus, for example, pretty clearly did make up speeches. And yet modern scholars, I think rightly, thought of him as very scrupulous about chronology to the point where when they found uh, an inscription that they thought contradicted Tacitus, and then some of them later changed their minds and said, no, it didn't contradict Tacitus. They were like shocked. It like shook the world of Tacitus scholarship. <laughs> so that business about him making up speeches, it didn't tend to spread to his other facts. Interesting. It was kind of interesting. It was like it was like it was uh, cordoned off, qu uh, quarantined, yeah. quarantined, quarantined, cordoned off. So I mm -hmm. talk about that in the in the book as well. Um, I see no evidence whatsoever, even for Luke, who was the most probably Hellenistically trained his Greek is the highest in the New Testament, with the possible exception of the yes, author of Hebrews, Hebrews yeah. uh, who may have been Luke, by the way. Um, so for that matter, but even there, it's interesting, you can go to like the speeches of Paul in Acts, and I know this is a controversial opinion, but they vary. Mm -hmm. they, they vary with his audience in these very realistic ways. And the speech of Paul differs from the speech of Peter in, mm -hmm. in ways that I think, uh, it's, it doesn't look like Luke showing off. It looks like Luke actually recording, maybe somebody reported it to him. In some cases, I think he was there, so. Interesting, yeah. Um, so I probably should have given you an opportunity earlier, but how would you describe your uh, historical reportage model and sort of uh, what, what distinguishes it? You talked about sometimes people automatically jump to the opposite end of the spectrum with what you must be saying. So, so how would you put what you're saying in your own words? So short version, the gospel authors were trying to get it right all the time. They never tried to change anything and they were highly successful. So that's my very short version. But this doesn't preclude their having to recognizably paraphrase. It also doesn't preclude their sometimes narrating in a way that is not in chronological order, but they're not trying to imply something contrary to the real chronological order. And we can talk some more about that. Um, and of course, it doesn't mean that they didn't make selections as you yourself were talking about, I think, correctly before. So, but yet, nevertheless, if they say something, it's because they believe that it's true. And then they weren't just gullible, they were actually getting it right. They were very highly reliable. So that's how I would characterize it briefly. Mm -hmm. And so I think another really important um, definition is reliable. And there are sort of different flavors of reliable and then th that sort of relates into how we treat them as history and, and understand what we can make of the facts that they report. So, so how would you define reliable and even what are the different flavors of reliability? Sure, sure. Well, something that's come to be popular that I don't agree with now is using the word reliable of a document to mean that we can get facts out of it. So um, you were talking earlier about going and seeing you know, Titanic and that's like obviously fiction and yet we can get facts out of it. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that the Titanic struck a, you know, that it, that it 
Fuck, it, le right? it left, yeah, you know, uh, New York, or, and then it hit an iceberg, and it was a big boat, and, right. and, and, and the people dressed the way they dressed, and some people were right. Irish, and some people were American, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right, yeah. right, and the, I, I, don't, I haven't actually seen the movie, but I think they do have the orchestra playing on, yeah. on the deck when it's sinking, you know, that's, an, that's a historical fact, so you can get historical facts out of it, that's not what I would take to be reliable but people will use it that way and it'll be interesting to see someone will be debating bart ehrman like craig evans or michael Kona will be debating bart ehrman are the gospels historically reliable and then you'll start hearing and i think we can really get a portrait of jesus out of the gospels you know or some words to that effect dr evans will say and and bart will say and here i have to i have to see his point but that's not what people would normally mean by reliable. So putting it non-technically, what we usually mean by reliable is that we can rely on something. And that's sort of using a word to define a word, but that we can depend, maybe I'll use a synonym there. Um, and the way I will define it non-technically is that if something comes from a source that constitutes a strong reason to think that it happened. Now it's not an indefeasible reason. You could change your mind. It might you might get counter evidence and say, oh, I guess he got, I guess he got that wrong, but that at least it creates a, a strong case. You were mentioning to me in our email correspondence ahead of time that you're a statistician, you like probability theory. So um, I like to talk in my probability work about Bayes factors and a, a Bayes factor, I usually use the simple ratio model as a uh, measure of, of evidential strength. Mm -hmm. So when I use the word reliable, I usually mean that it has a strongly top heavy base factor. Yeah. So that you can, you can plug that in and that constitutes a pretty strong evidence that it happened just for it to be stated by that source. So that if John says that Jesus said such and such, then we don't have to say, oh, gee, I don't know. Does that fulfill one of the other criteria of authenticity? And uh, it's too hard for historians to tell because we don't have any special evidence about that saying no. If John is reliable, and of course I argue, it's not like I just assume it, right? But if John is reliable, then just the fact that that saying is in John is strong reason to think that Jesus actually said it. I mean, it's not even a miracle for Jesus to stand up and say something. So even if you have mm -hmm. a bias against miraculous, for Jesus to make a statement is it's not even miraculous. So um, that's how I define it, that it's strong reason to believe that it happened, though it could be counteracted or defeated. Now, I'll define minimal reliability as just meaning that it's some reason to think that it happened. So yeah. this would just be like it has somewhat of a top heavy. Maybe a greater than 50-50 just based it, off of pure reportage. Well, yeah. and the way, you know, you know how a Bayes factor works, it's like an odds, yeah. right? The odds of this evidence, if this were true versus the probability of this evidence, if this were false. So yeah. we think of someone as just being white noise. We don't listen to him at all. If we think he's just as likely to say something if, if it's true as he's yeah. likely to say it if it's false, right? It's like he's useless, right? He's just right, a right. number generator, right? So a minimal reliability would be that it's better than that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. 50-50 would actually be pretty bad if uh, now that I'm thinking about it for someone right? just spewing you know, it's out just, facts. It's just a coin flip whether I'm telling you something true or not about Jesus. Right, and in know, fact, right. if I was less than 50-50, you could just flip, invert the statement to, to suddenly make me Some more Some reason reliable. against it, exactly. Yeah. So you think of the boy who cried wolf. Um, how do the villagers come to think of the boy who cried wolf? They don't, they don't listen to him at all. 
right now. Then he happens to be right one time and then he gets eaten by the wolf, right? So he's fooled them so many times that they just come to treat his, his statements as white noise. So minimal reliability is that it's better than that. And then when I use the term reliability, I usually mean high reliability, that it's much better than that, that I can just say, well, you know, probably this is good reason to think it happened, though I could change my mind. Right. And then you can imagine if we have multiple people talking about the same thing, we could hierarchically rank people by their reliability, perhaps Mm -hmm. based off of past experience or credentials or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then if they contradict each other, we normally sort people by their reliability and take the higher against the lower until proven otherwise. Or we try to harmonize them or we, you know, or we, if we can Mm -hmm. ask them questions that might help, we might be able to sort it out or whatever, but right. We, if you've got an actual contradiction, then you're going to, you're going to have to make your pick. Right. All right. So I think it would be helpful to maybe go over an example or two Mm -hmm. that are sort of like maybe a passage that's sort of like a key that highlights the difference between how a literary device theory might treat it versus how a historical um, uh, reportage model might treat it. Yeah, so I've already sort of introduced this one, so I can maybe continue with this. Uh, When did Mary Magdalene see Jesus after he rose from the dead? Okay. Uh, obviously, a skeptic doesn't think he rose from the dead at all, but we're, you know, trying to see if the accounts can be put together or not. So in Matthew 28, it says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb, and then it na- after naming them, then it just says they, it just says they for the mm-hmm. rest of the of the thing, um, and. Th- they see the stone rolled away and so forth. The angel says to, says to them, you know, he's not here for he's risen and all that. And they, they run away with great joy to tell the disciples. And it says, and, and while they were going, they saw Jesus. And then they, are, they seize his feet and so forth. And he gives them a message for the disciples. So that's when they see Jesus. All right. Now, if you just read Matthew by itself, he names Mary Magdalene at the beginning, and then he just says they, um, you would naturally interpret it. Your first impression would be that she was one of them who went through this whole thing, and that then she saw Jesus when leaving the tomb like that. Mm-hmm. Then you go over to John, John 20, and um, and um, Mary Magdalene does come to the tomb, though it doesn't mention that she's with anyone else. And it says she sees the stone rolled away. She runs and finds Peter and John. And then she comes back and she's weeping. And she sees this man who is Jesus, but she thinks he's the gardener. And she says, where have you laid him that I may take him away? And he says her name, Mary. Mm-hmm. It's this wonderful scene. She recognizes it. And then she, she says, Rabbi, you know, and falls at his feet. Okay, these are very different accounts. So the the approach that Dr. Lacona takes is that you take your first impression, and I'm sorry to have to say this is also the approach that Dr. Ehrman takes. You take your first impression of each account, you fix it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You fix it in place, you don't change it. And then if those two first impressions are in contradiction, then the idea is that one or the other of these authors must change something. Okay, mm-hmm. so Dr. Lacona is very definite that either John, or either John or Matthew must have moved, relocated is his word, where Mary met Jesus. Um, 
Now for John, as I mentioned before, to have relocated, it would be to invent an entire seat because the circumstances are so different. For Matthew, would be for Matthew to suppress that if he deliberately relocated, to say, I know she saw him in this private interview, but I'm going to make her see uh, Jesus first with the other women. So my approach instead would be to say, well, how could we put these together? And I don't think it's very strained at all. Now, we may say maybe Matthew didn't know about the scene in John, but he doesn't actually assert that it didn't happen. You know, mm -hmm. he just sleeps mm -hmm. it out, right? Just doesn't show any awareness of it. Um, I think Mary left the group. And, and I often say that to uh, too many New Testament scholars, the people in the Bible, they're like freeze frame photos, whereas real people are like a movie not in the sense of being made up, but in the sense that they move, right? They don't stay with the group, you know, that they were with. So, all right, Mary left the group. The others went on and had the experience that Matthew describes, and then she came back later and saw Jesus at the tomb. And I think that's actually pretty economical harmonization. So that's an example of the difference. But then I want to give another example of the difference that doesn't involve an apparent discrepancy, because I think this is, in a sense, even more striking. Sure. So uh, this was in Dr. Lacona's recent series of videos. He was talking about Jesus' dialogue with Pontius Pilate. He acknowledged that one part of it is actually confirmed by an undesigned coincidence. We may discuss those later, um, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. But then, like, it's just a couple sentences later, Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Dr. Lacona suggested, he said, Maybe John thought that this was a good time to remind his readers of the place where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. So maybe John embellished by inventing that Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, I just want to point out there is no contradiction, not even an apparent contradiction, not any discrepancy at all that anybody could ever bring up between John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke on this it's just a bit of dialogue that they don't report that's it right okay now he then hastened to say now i'm not saying that's what happened he said but this just could be you know and then he said something like it is impossible for historians to tell historians cannot tell now to me that sort of epitomizes the difference that what you're doing is you're going sentence by sentence through the dialogue, you're admitting that this sentence of the dialogue is even confirmed. And then you're going to just a couple sentences later, and you're going, I don't know, maybe he made it up. I'm not saying he did, yeah. but it's impossible and, to know. And like, to me, it's like, why would you do that? The very fact that you have evidence that John knew what happened in this dialogue, which you've just admitted, should lead us to think that this isn't made up either. And, and that's what gets really topsy-turvy about the, the literary device model is like, you would seemingly only be able to make arguments for it if you had some evidence that wasn't generated by a literary device model, mm -hmm. right? If you're trying, if you've got two gospel accounts, right, and you're trying to figure out when Jesus saw Mary Magdalene or what uh, Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, and you think that both of them are coming from the same sort of literary device liberty sort of paradigm, well, then how can you say, oh, well, I'm pretty sure that, that Matthew's getting that part of the dialogue right, so therefore we can see the, the dialogue in John is literizing. But like, how, how would you know a priori which direction to go or, to which, or which any of them? It seems that, that you're on such quicksand either way that, that you can't play them off of each other like that if they're both generated that way. 
Well, it's, it's interesting to see what, what happens in practice. Um, one thing that happens in practice is a huge emphasis on multiple attestation. Mm. So, um, you know, the way I like to put this is everything has to be reported twice. <laughs> like, you, can't, you know, you can't know that it happened unless it's reported twice. So there's that uh, if something is multiply attested. A second thing that we get is a constant move to a higher and higher level of generality. Jesus talked to Pontius Pilate, right? He had some kind of a dialogue. Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's, you know, so what, what ends up being multiply attested may not even be anything sp so specific, but, you know, it can be at a higher level of generality. So you'll see this in uh, Dr. Lacona's book on the resurrection. The, the disciples had group appearances of Jesus. And then he says whether any of the particular group of appearances were the way that it really happened, maybe going beyond what the historical data can warrant. But so you go up to this very high level of, of, of describing, they had some kind of group appearances. So that's, that's another thing that happens. A third thing that happens is they love Mark. <laughs> okay, it's just, you know, if you have to pick for whatever reason, and, and I just think it's a, I think it's a scholarly bias. I'm sorry. It's just I, an a priori decision, really. It's just, it's a scholarly bias. It's like Mark, if, if we got to pick, we're going to, we're going to usually say Mark is historical and anything that's added to or not confirmed by Mark is, is more questionable. And, and I, I see that movement all the time. Right. Right, and I can understand how probability theory will start to play into this. One, so I'll take a little detour and I'll bring it back. One of my favorite games is code names or code words. I should probably be able to remember the name of one of my favorite games. But it's, so, so you have, a, uh, there are two teams. You have a, 20, a five by five grid of words. So you've got 25 words. And I think, what is it? 10 of them belong to me, 10 of them belong to my opponent, four of them are neutral, and one of them is you lose the game. And so I, so imagine you're my partner, and I've got these 10 words. I know which 10 words are mine, or are ours, but you don't know. And I get to say one word, like, imagine, like, some of our words are cat, soda can, and, and rainbow. I'm like, man, what, what words can I say? What one word can I say to try to unite all three of those? And I'll pick, I don't know, like fairy tale or whatever. And then you'll be like, oh, fairy tale. Well, you know, here's the word unicorn over here. And, and I'm like, oh, no, I didn't mean for you to pick that word. I, 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 and it's, it's really like taboo. It is like taboo. It's yeah. like a higher level taboo. Yeah. Yes. And I, I love the game because there's a lot of probability theory that works into it, but it's also a verbal game, which means that my wife likes it. Um, so well, the other thing <laughs> is you don't want to pair uh, romantic partners or pair, uh, married people in that because they know too many. Yes. Things yes. They, they have they have them. a thicker commonality that right. they can reference right. when they're picking their words. Right. But I think everyone should play this game because you just eat humble pie and how hard it is to communicate and how and you see how easy it is to be misunderstood. Because once you've said, um, you know, fairy tale three words, then you can't talk. And then you listen to this other person. Well, I think they were trying to say this. And I think they were trying to say this. And you're like, oh, no, no. no. Well, it's also like charades <laughs> in that respect, too. Very much like charades or Pictionary or any of those. Right? Yes. And, and so what you can see is uh, the way that this relates. So like what you were saying. So you, you read the account of uh, Mary Magdalene um, seeing Jesus after he's resurrected. 
and you form in your mind what you think is the most likely chronology of events and sequence and cast of characters and, and stuff like that. And then you read John and, you know, so then you've got these two different ones and like what, it, it seems overly rigid if you were to force someone to commit to their most likely interpretation, right? Like you could maybe ask someone to draw 10 slightly different variations of the same account and, you know, you could maybe say, well, I think this is the most likely, but it could also have been like this, right? And you have a scattering of them, and maybe you would place your probability chips in a lot of them. And then you do the same thing with John, and you might find that of these, you know, 10 most likely versions of the story, two or three of them actually overlap with each other. And even if they weren't the highest probability based off of the evidence alone, they still had a decently high probability and they overlap. And so then the question is, is when is it more likely or, or more prudent or more parsimonious or however you want to put it mm-hmm. to pick between a slightly less likely interpretation of the story mm-hmm. or to go with the conclusion that something is wrong? And mm-hmm. I think playing games like Codenames makes you realize it's very easy to misunderstand someone. Yes, and- absolutely. Yeah. And we see that, especially in chronology, like if, if somebody... Um, didn't really mean to say that he did this before he did that it's very easy to think that he was trying to imply an order when he really you know he really wasn't um Mm -hmm. so yeah two things first of all our probability in these areas has to be empirically informed that's Mm -hmm. obviously true and uh this is one reason why i find that people in police work people in uh who've been lawyers who've questioned you know witnesses and that kind of thing they tend to go for the reportage model more um and that's because they have all of this empirical background okay so jay warner wallace for example i quote him in the mirror of the mask is saying you know i'm gonna bet you that the guy who says that about um some sort of literary devices never questioned witnesses (laughs) okay and and so why is this well because you realize how often those supplementary accounts do correct our first impression Mm-hmm. Right, that if you read Matthew, you got a first impression what happened, but you should allow the supplementary account. So if if one witness says, you know, he ran and he ran away down the street, and then the other witness said he drove away in his car, you might say, okay, these are in contradiction. But then when you realize the one witness was standing in a position where, you know, he could only see the window here and saw the person starting to run down the street, the other person was standing looking over here, he could see the guy getting into his car and they're actually both right yeah yeah so by questioning witnesses we realize the need to take in supplementary um supplementary information then the the next and to place a a relatively low probability on even your most likely interpretation of the events not to be rigid not to be like Mm -hmm. nope 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 that has to be what it means that's the only thing it can be and bart airman is such a bully and i you know i'm allowed to say this when when i when i'm talking about evangelical christians you're not allowed to use words like bully um i do find (laughs) that people people don't get their feelings hurt as much if you say that bart airman is a bully because he's not thought of as a brother in christ but he, he is um and he'll say well if you want to write your own gospel like that that's how he talks about harmonizing he'll go well that's writing your own gospel and you can do that if you want but i'm not sure that that's the best way to deal with the gospels we actually have and i'm like i am 
I'm sure that's the best way to deal with the Gospels we actually have because we're treating them the way we actually ought to treat historical sources. I do this with Plutarch too. You know, mm-hmm. um, I find that sometimes when Dr. Lacona is talking or his uh, mentor or whatever his colleague or whatever you want to call him, Christopher Pelling, this classicist, uh, and they've influenced one another, when they're dealing with Plutarch, they'll make Plutarch contradict himself. And I'll say, you know, it's not clear to me that Plutarch is contradicting himself. Mm-hmm. These could both be accurate, and I think you're interpreting him over rigidly. So then the next thing to recognize is that um, attributing an intention to change the story is itself an added epicycle that you're putting on your theory. Mm-hmm. So it increases mm-hmm. theory complexity. Yeah, which decreases and parsimoniousness it, it, and decreases de- the prior the probability exactly. that your model is true. Yeah. And so this is part of what I'm doing in the book with what, what I call my flow chart. And some people love the flow chart. Actually, Kona did not like the flow chart. That's yeah, fine. That. <laughs> but I'm trying to show the 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 stages of of the burden of proof. All right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. first of all, is there even a contradiction here at all? You know, let's just start there. Is there even an appearance? Well, first of all, is there even an appearance of contradiction? So then is there a a real contradiction, you know? And then, well, okay, did the person know he was getting it wrong? So to say that he knew he was getting it wrong as opposed to getting it wrong accidentally, that's yet another thing you have to try to argue for, Mm -hmm, that he must mm have known. Mm Because we see people making mistakes all the time. Again, if we're not worrying about inerrancy for the moment, okay? In our common experience, we see people making mistakes more than we see them changing things deliberately. So will that account for it? Um, Okay, so you have to argue that he knew it. Then you have to argue that um, he he had some kind of a motive for putting something different in. It's astonishing to me how often people will not even suggest a motive. You know, like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe John just embellished that. And it's like, why would he do that? You know, and so you have to have this idea that he had this motive to change it. Then the final thing you're adding is that the audience, that there was this wide understanding. Now we're taking on a huge burden of proof. I mean, do you realize it would be so easy to prove the existence, if I use prove in the colloquial sense, of movies based on true events in our own time? Mm. If some, you lived a thousand years from now and you yeah. had all our records, you could come back, you could find directors, interviews, you yep. can find websites talking about how things were changed. You could, I mean, it's just like everywhere. Even if you just had a fraction of the, the evidence survived through time. Yeah, the, there's Absolutely. a, a mountain of it. Very easy. And you could talk about like how widely available these movies were too. That's another thing. They were part of popular culture. They weren't right. just part of educated culture. Everybody went to the movies and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And to show that the audience as a whole, the culture as a whole, and also the homogeneity of our culture. There are people in South Korea who watch American movies, right? right. Well, the the, the whereas Korean... uh, Judea and Galilee had very distinctive cultures, and Samaria and, and Asia Minor, and you know, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so they're taking on. They have. They don't even seem to realize what a burden of proof they're taking on with this final step. That it, the audience wouldn't have cared. The audience wouldn't have minded. The audience would have realized that ah, oh, that's the kind of thing the author might do, and they'll just throw it out there. So what I'm trying to do is show 
uh, and that's part of what my training in probability has led me to do, to show the layers of complexity and uh, heaviness that are being added to this thesis, and then the insufficiency of the evidence vis-a-vis -vis the heaviness of the thesis. Yeah, and that's something that people that aren't well-trained in science or statistics or probability might not get, is that the more complex you make your theory, the more likely it is to be wrong. Not the opposite. Now, if you make your, uh, all else being equal. Right. Now, if, right. if adding complexity to your theory makes it suddenly fit the data a lot better, right. well, right. then the complexity is worth it. But if it only adds maybe a little bit of extra fit, a simpler model that might not have as much good fit, but is still just simpler, could still be better. And, and this is something that, that it takes a little bit of statistical training to understand quite exactly yeah. how that works. Yeah. And so, so I, so I like your point. I think that that sometimes the literary device view gets praised as being slightly more humble or something because you are not, I don't know, it's like you're treating the standards of the time by its own standards or something uh -huh. like that, or not asserting your own cultural viewpoint back onto them or something. So it gets treated with a little bit of humility. But right. I actually. I actually think that, you know, you can really put the, the shoe on the other foot with that, that there's a decent amount of humility and saying like, well, I might not just be right with what my original gut impression of the story was, mm -hmm. and that trying to harmonize is actually an act in humility itself. There's that. And then there's also the question of, well, are they right about the standards of the yeah, time? Well, that's and that's part of why my book is so long. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is that when you get these assertions, okay, this is in the, uh, what do you call it, exercise books, this is in the biography, this is in this and that, it, it, it's overwhelming to people. I mean, I've had a very highly placed person say to me, well, I don't consider myself, uh, you know, qualified to investigate that. And I'm like, yeah, you, you are, you're qualified to event. But so I went out and I did it. And I'm not asking anybody to just take my word for it. That's why I wrote a long book. But um, you don't just get to assert that these were the standards at the time. You know, you have to, you have to show it. And I, I would say they, they have not shown it. The other thing is there's a certain amount of inconsistency. Uh, at times they'll say, these are the standards of the time, these are ancient, Lydia's being anachronistic. But more recently, particularly since the book came out actually, interestingly, what Dr. Lacona has taken to saying is, this is what we do all the time in ordinary conversation. Now, there's a little tension there between these were the, these were the ancient, it's different, they were so different. And oh, well, this is what we do all the time in ordinary conversation. Well, if this is what we do all the time now, then it's, then it's our standards. Then right. it's an, and, actually then, and suddenly that, that layer of, of worldview distance or however you want to put, put it ha, ha, is starting to disappear. It's is starting to disappear. And then it's like, well, you know what? This isn't what we do all the time in ordinary conversation. Yeah. You know, we don't have ordinary conversation, for goodness sake. You, you stick, with the, stick with the movies based on true event model. That was actually a better uh, model for what you're really trying to say, not casual conversation. Casual conversation is a terrible model. And, and maybe we do have some friends that we know tend to embellish or exaggerate, or maybe we can think of certain politicians that might be more prone to exaggerating than others. Mm -hmm. But we normally that will start to get exposed, the better you get to know someone, and then that lowers your trust of them. Right. right? And I can't imagine that it was any different then. It's not, uh, it's certainly not just accepted. Yes. Right. I mean, this is why you can play gotcha on a politician by showing that he lied. Right.
right? Yeah. If it was just accepted and then we just go, oh, well, we have to distinguish. I mean, there's, there's cynical acceptance. There's like, oh yeah, there goes that guy again, but not yeah. moral acceptance. If I can use that word, I think people do kind of say, well, that's not very good. You know, that's not right. Right. And nope. even the cynical acceptance has a cost to it, right? Yeah. It means yeah. that every once in a while when that, the, the person that's cynically known to over-exaggerate, every once in a while that when they're trying to say something true, even the people that might kind of support them, but cynically know not to trust them when they're talking about themselves, mm. well, well, there's a cost to that because they will think it's unlikely to be true. That's right. That's yeah. exactly so, right. So I, I think that well, I do think it's important that there are some worldview gaps, or however you want to put that, between us and the authors and the audience in the first century, that I, I don't think that this sort of simple standard of truth and reportage was that different. Because like even in our own times, we can go to different cultures, and, and it seems pretty uniform on that sort of general idea that you should speak the truth when you're talking. And I think we can find evidence concerning that time. That's why I have a chapter called Let Ancient People Speak for Themselves. Yeah. That was, I had fun writing that chapter where we actually find very clear ancient, you know, standards of, uh, of truthfulness. And then, then what will be said is, well, they didn't always live up to them. Well, we don't always live up to them. Okay. Yeah. But the point is, you know, what, what's the statement that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice plays to virtue? Mm -hmm. Hypocrisy is the tribute that vice play, pays to virtue. Yeah. You know, the very fact that they asserted them shows that the standard existed and that they, they wanted their audience to think that that's what they were doing. Yeah. Um, okay, so now now I have a question uh, to to shift gears a little bit. So the Gospel of John is a little weird, uh, or at least uh, it reads quite differently. The the three synoptic Gospels read relatively similarly, and they have their own unique flavors. But the Gospel of John, in many ways, seems like an outlier, and you can even quantify some of the outliers, uh, some of the ways in which it's an outlier. And um, I think that, and, and I know that you're currently writing a book on John, so that John is very much at the top of your mind. So how would you generally approach the question of, well, why does John seem so different then? You know, there are no exorcisms. There are fewer miracles, but spotlights on, on miracles, you know, and, and uh, you know, a whole by, and Jesus keeps running around saying, I am the this or that. And, and there's all of these arguments with the Jews and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the unique things that, that keep, uh, that are relatively unique to the way that the Gospel of John reads. How, how would you make sense of that? And how does that fit into this discussion? Well, yeah, you know, it, I wouldn't necessarily go with like each thing you listed, like as far as sure. arguments with the Jews, my goodness, there actually, I, I counted this up uh, a few years ago. Luke has more conflicts with the Pharisees, I think, than any other gospel. Luke and Matthew are closely tied, but I think Luke is the highest, more mm -hmm. than more mm -hmm. than John. So, but <clears throat> anyway, um, I think we need to get away from the idea that a given gospel is meaning to give a representative sample of what Jesus did and what Jesus said, what themes he addressed, uh, how he talked and so forth like that. None of the gospels has a statement at the beginning that says, um, 
<clears throat> the deeds and words of Jesus represented in this gospel constitute a representative sample of the kinds of deeds and words that or, Jesus or a randomly in. chosen sample or something. Exactly, yeah. randomly chosen and therefore hopefully you know <laughs> yeah. representative, right? None of them say that. Um, mm -hmm. And I tend to think that John is self-consciously supplementing the synoptics. And I think that, you know, when you come to like parables, well, you can just imagine John, you know, he's like, the parables have already been done, man. They've yeah. been done to death. You know, we, we've got lots of parables. You know, I've only got one scroll, man. I, I want to do something that hasn't already been done. So <clears throat> I think there's a lot of self-conscious supplementation. And we definitely need to get away from this representative sample assumption or random sample assumption. Um, there are topics that we have not discussed here tonight that I discuss a lot in other contexts or with other people. So this isn't a representative sample of, you know, the way Lydia talks necessarily. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've, I've sometimes talked about this the way that I have my, my homeschooling mom persona and I have my scholar persona and they're actually rather different. Um, and you can get a little bit of shock when someone who knows me in the one context meets me in the other. It's kind of interesting to see. So mm -hmm. we definitely need to get away from that. Um, so I think that supplementation is a biggie. The other thing is that I would actually, to some extent, challenge the, the premise. Uh, I have sections in the forthcoming book, The Eye of the Beholder, where I show parallels of how Jesus talks and speech, speaks, and they're actually astonishing. So I don't want to steal the thunder of the, the book too much, but here are just a couple. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. John 16, 24, it's a completely different context. It's at the Last Supper, um, whereas the Matthew 7, 7 is uh, Sermon on the Mount. All right. John 16, 24, ask and you shall receive. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. All right. Um, or here's a general similarity of manner. Asking the relatives if they have faith. So you find in Mark 9, 23, all things are possible to him that believes. He's talking to the father of, I, I believe, a boy who's demon-possessed, you know, or he'll ask a, a person, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Uh, sometimes it's the person himself who wants the miracle. Sometimes it's the, the relative of the person who's afflicted. Now you go to the raising of Lazarus to Martha. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Now, it's like a completely different context, but it's... Um, it's clearly the same man, the same mind, the same manner. And I have a bunch of these. It's really striking and does not get emphasized. I got quite a few of these from a, an author named Stanley Leeds. He has like 20 pages of them. Um, here's, a, here's a slightly longer one that I like to give. Um, when Jesus is speaking in Luke, he says that uh, you will lose an, uh, an animal on the Sabbath. He's, he's annoyed with them because they're giving him a hard time over healing on the Sabbath. He says, you will lose an animal to take it to water on the Sabbath. Should I not have loosed this daughter of Abraham whom um, Satan has bound for these 18 years? So this was the woman who, who was bent over. You go over to John. Uh, in John 5, Jesus tells the man to uh, take up his bed and walk after he heals him at the pool of Bethesda. It's a healing not given in the synoptics. Then you go to John 7, and he's talking about that because they, they made a fuss that yeah. he healed on the yeah. Sabbath. He said, um, I did one miracle, and you all wondered, you will circumcise a man on the eighth day that the, the scripture be not broken, that the law be not broken. I made a man entirely whole on the Sabbath. And 
you know, you, you were no. displeased or whatever. So it's, it's almost like a pun, circumcising on the Sabbath versus making a man whole. Yeah. Okay, loosing the animal versus loosing the woman and so forth. Now, this is these are completely different contexts, different miracles. It's the same turn of mind. Yeah. It's the way his mind works. It's astounding. So I think we do need to push back a bit against the idea that uh, that Jesus in particular looks different between uh, the Gospels. The other thing is some of the differences actually involve uh, John's looking in a sense, more um, more historical. I, I'm not trying to diss the historicity of the synoptics, but I'll give an example. When Jesus travels in John, John tends to go into more detail. So yeah. it's like he was going to go to Galilee. So he went and found Philip and said, follow me. It's like thinking about going to Galilee. And then or he's referencing in, the time of year based off of uh, Jewish festivals is something that will, John does yeah, he'll very often, frequently, more frequently. Very specific. Or he's up in Galilee, he's going to go, uh, well, he is going to go to the Festival of Tabernacles, but um, they don't know that, and his brothers yeah. are mocking him, right? I and sometimes so, wonder if that's an example of Jesus being a little deceptive, but that's a different question. He's, he's like trolling them a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, my, yeah. my time has not yet come or whatever, but what is that? Well, the way I put that is the perspective of the author is always with Jesus, looking where he's going to go. So if he's in the south, he's going to go north. The, the speaker or the voice is with Jesus looking north. If he's in the north, he's going to go south. The voice is with Jesus looking south. All these kinds of like little unnecessary circumstantial things that don't seem to contribute much to the story. You find them in John. He tells things in more detail. That certainly doesn't make him look less, uh, you know, less historical. Um, and I really think that the synoptics tended to follow each other's selection of material. Now that doesn't mean that I think that they didn't have independent information. I think they had a lot of independent information about the details of what happened, but I think they tended to sort of follow to some extent each other's outlines. And there is some kind of literary dependence there that's widely agreed of, upon by scholars. And so we definitely, I was astounded. I had a debate with Craig Evans and he said, well, I'm just counting up votes and it's three to one against John. If I said that, you know, everybody would say, see, Lydia is clueless. She doesn't know about the synoptic problem, right? <laughs> okay, that the synoptics are not independent in their mm -hmm. selection, of, at least their selection of material. Whereas John, I think, is consciously going his own way. So it's not three to one. So I think that's. Yeah. Yeah, that, that ignores correlation uh, of the, the, da the data columns. But yeah, mm -hmm. that, that's interesting. So um, I think that one thing that people will say about the Gospel of John is that it is very tailored for perhaps a slightly different context, like imagining John being in Ephesus and there being perhaps people who are running around preaching that John the Baptist is actually the Messiah, not Jesus, and then there being weird Gnostics, and then, of course, there being every form of paganism that was in the empire at the time, and that, that John is tailoring his gospel for um, evangelistic purposes related to his context and his possible audience both to protect the Christians that he already has from these outside influences, and then maybe to target as uh, evangelism targets these other groups. 
And so that's why perhaps why uh, John the Baptist in the Gospel of John goes, you know, he, he's, it's extremely clear that John the Baptist is not the Messiah in the, in the Gospel of John. He said and did not deny, right, which is actually not putting on the lips. That's, that's a narrative, a, a narrator's comment and stuff like that. And I, I find a lot of those sorts of ideas persuasive, but I don't think that it's naturally in disagreement with what you're saying either. Well, and I think we should realize what is our evidence that there were people saying that John the Baptist was the Messiah. It, it, it can, we've got to watch out for a circular argument here, right? right. If our argument that John, that that was the, as they call it, the sits and laban, the situation in life in which the gospel was written is just the fact that this scene appears mm -hmm. then we can't turn around and act like we have independent evidence that that was going on and then say ah maybe this was written to address that you know i'm not sure really what other evidence we have that there were people in the surrounding context who were saying that john the baptist was uh the messiah maybe you know we do find mm -hmm. in the book of acts there are sometimes people who are hanging around you know it's like somebody who hasn't had internet in in years or something it's like they haven't heard about jesus mm -hmm. they just know about john the baptist you know it's like ah mm -hmm. you know let me bring you up to speed or whatever um yeah. and and interestingly when that happens those people seem to be very easily converted to christianity they never seem to be resistant in acts but i don't know that we have any any evidence that as late i tend to think john was written in the old age of the author that seems to be a patristic view um that that late there were still people around saying that john the baptist was the messiah eh, it's possible but probably our only evidence for it is that that passage occurs in in john but maybe that ever that passage mm -hmm. just occurs in john because it happened and john thought it was interesting so right. that may be but, all there is to it but even even imagining that that is true it's it's not a literary device to highlight what you think is an important detail right. that that the author thinks is historical. Right, right. Right. He's picking particular details because of his context. Right. But he cares about those details because he thinks they're true. Right. He, he, right. He, he's putting he's not he's not necessarily inventing dialogues of John the Baptist. Right. Right he could be highlighting and remembering particularly things that John the Baptist said they think are most relevant to keep people from converting to John the Baptistism, even if that's a, a risk in his environment. That's not a literary device that's still compatible with historical reportage. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that, and that's what you're saying about why the Gospel of John could be different than the synoptics is the con, you know, having a different context, having different motivations, having different goals and worries and concerns is entirely compatible with a historical report. It just affects what you report, what you emphasize, what you don't emphasize, et cetera. Right. And that actually kind of takes us to uh, the Christology issue. I mean, what you mm -hmm. just said, um, Bart Ehrman is real big on the argument from silence. It's, it's one of his favorites. And so he'll say, well, surely if Jesus had really said, I and the Father are one the synoptics would have reported it. Why would they not have reported this, this big thing and so forth? And so I think to some extent we have this anachronistic view that the synoptic authors were thinking to themselves, what's the strongest thing that Jesus ever said that sounded like he was claiming to be God? I want to be sure to get that in there. You know, mm -hmm. maybe that wasn't what was in their minds that they thought they needed to highlight. Maybe they were trying to talk about him being the Messiah more instead. And then, you know, John, you can even picture John. Hey, why didn't they, 
why didn't they mention that? I got to be sure to mention that, you know, or even the mm -hmm. foot washing, you know, why didn't they mention the foot washing? I want to, I want to tell about that. So, um, the argument from silence, and this is a probabilistic issue as well, Tim has written an article on this, depends heavily on the idea that if something were true, we would have expected to find this person mentioning it. And therefore, the fact that he doesn't, didn't mention it is strong evidence that it's not true. Well, and, as someone who's a little bit of a fan of the argument from silence, especially related to Christological questions, it's there is some probabilistic weight of what you can do when things aren't mentioned right the, and especially the the more the more data you have the longer you go without seeing something the less likely you'll ever see the something right that that well it depends on what the something is so um it, it, i like to make the following contrast um i don't see a spider in this room therefore probably there's not a spider in this room contrasted with i don't see a tiger in this room therefore probably there is not a tiger in this room Fair okay enough. Obviously, the second is a much stronger argument. That spider, he could live out his entire life in that corner down there and, and live and die and eat flies, and I would never see him. So that's where we need to we need to calibrate. In fact, Tim has some amazing examples of people who don't mention things you would think they would mention. Um, Ulysses S. Grant having memoirs and not mentioning the Emancipation Proclamation, for example. You know, um, Marco Polo never mentioning the Great Wall of China, you know, all the, all these things, you know, there's quite a number of them that you'd really be surprised that people don't mention. So uh, arguments from silence come in many different flavors. And I think the worst argument from silence, the worst way to do it is to take the silence of one person and to pit it off or square it off against the at definite assertion by another person whom you have some reason to believe is reliable. Mm -hmm. So suppose my, my husband and daughter, suppose they both drive home the same way most days, all right? And so one day they, they both come home and my daughter says there was this terrible accident and she names the uh, intersection. And then Tim comes home and he just talks to me about other things. He doesn't say anything about the accident and I kind of would expect him to come the same way. Now, how good of an argument, I mean, does that mean that I think she made up the accident? Mm -hmm. You know, even if like he never mentions, like months pass and he never mentions the accident, well, so what? You know, I mean, it's not even like it gets all that much stronger as the months pass. Um, so it's too, it's, it's not good for me to say she probably made up the accident because he didn't mention it and to try to pit them against one another because they're not yeah. equal in weight at all. There could be all kinds of reasons why he didn't mention the accident. But also, like you said, with the, the spider versus tiger example, the, the, the more important or salient a point is, the more noticeable its silence is also. But we do need to say salient to whom? That's a good point. Okay, to and us. That's a very good point. Versus the person we're concerned about. And that's kind of what I was bringing up about the Emancipation Proclamation. All right, we're really interested. We think of that as like the most important thing that Abraham Lincoln did. Yeah. You know, maybe Ulysses S. Grant didn't agree with us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's in history, especially, it's astonishing how saliency varies. In fact, yeah. I've often said we need to get a new grasp on what I call the randomness of saliency. 
Fair enough. It is astonishing how random saliency is and varies from one person to another. Amen. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is very true. So I guess transitioning a little bit more to talk about Christology itself. Sure. So, um, so Bart, so Bart Ehrman, like, so a, a, as you know, and perhaps maybe people who are listening to this video who were followed here by Dr. McGrew, but, but don't know me very well or don't mm. know where I'm coming from, I guess I should just give a little disclaimer, is that I come from a non-Trinitarian form of Christianity. Um, we call ourselves biblical Unitarians. We believe just in basically a human Messiah, Jesus, who didn't pre-exist his birth or anything like that, and that God the Father is all of who God is and God is unipersonal. Um, just to put it briefly. So I, I didn't want to, speaking of what's salient, sure. you know, I could imagine some of your, your audience following here and, and not knowing that. So, so that is an important context. I'm going to announce be, it. Yes. No, that's totally fine. Please <laughs> yeah. do. So, so, you know, in general, I'm considered outside the realm of orthodoxy. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, not a Mormon. It's different than those two things. Um, but so, my, so biblical Unitarians are a little bit lukewarm on Bart Ehrman about Christology in general, because we sort of like him because it's like, well, he points out that the Trinity is not in the Bible and that Jesus being God and all these things is, is a subject that progressed over time in a way that a lot of Christians don't realize. But for people who are like really nitty gritty about Christology stuff, Bart, Bart Ehrman actually isn't that good. Uh, in general, I, I, you can probably you won't you won't take any gumption with me saying that. Um, so that there's a lot of resolution uh, on the top of, of Christology that Bart Ehrman doesn't really seem to understand. So I a big thing that a lot of secular scholars will do will be like the Synoptic Gospels have a human Jesus who is not a deity in some sort of pre-existent sense, you know, he's really close to God and uniquely divine maybe, but not like divine in the full capital D sense. And then the Gospel of John has an obviously divine deity, deified Jesus, and these two are just in contrast with each other, and this is something that developed in the decades between them or something like that. And so this, so this is where uh, there's a, probably an interesting parallel and contrast between us in that we will assert that the Gospels are portraying the same Jesus, they're portraying the same Christology, but we disagree about what exactly that Christology is. And so, so I don't know, I guess, do you have any reactions, I guess, before I, I keep monologuing on that? Well, no, I mean, I think that's a clear statement, you know, of, of where we're each coming from. I'm a little interested in the fact, because I didn't know this before, uh, you started sending me, you know, your, your questions and so forth, that you don't, in a sense, take a more Ehrman-esque position about John. Like, I might have thought that you would take the position that the, the uh, material that's in John, where Jesus says, you know, before Abraham was, I am, or whatever, is not historical. What I've gathered from your questions and your self-presentation is that you actually think that is historical, but that it's been misunderstood by Trinitarians. Would that be accurate? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And so then I would, I'm just guessing, this is just guessing, you didn't tell me yeah, this, sure, but sure. I'm just guessing that you think that Jesus is just claiming the Messiah there or something like that. 
it, yes. In, in so in John eight fifty eight in particular, and man, do I get asked about this passage a lot. Sure, of course, and ten thirty yes. as well. You know. Yes, uh, and so when Jesus said, so in that dialogue, right, he's having, it's one of those, it's perhaps the most heated uh, mm -hmm. debate dialogue in, in the whole Gospels, where both yes. of them put very slanderous things against each other. And so the point, the ba basically why I understand the point of the dialogue is that Jesus is saying that to now be a child of God, you have to be a child of God through Jesus, through faith in Jesus. Like in the Old Testament, you were a literal child of God by being a descendant of Abraham, but now there's this new religious spiritual sense in that we're children of God through Jesus. And, and that, that's the idea that Jesus is trying to get across in this passage. And so the Jews are like, oh, we're, you know, how dare you say that we're illegitimate children or how you, dare you say that we're children of Satan? You know, we're children of Abraham and, that, and that's how we are right with God. And Jesus says, no, you, you do the works, of, you don't do the works of Abraham, you do the works of Satan or whatever. And then so, so then they say, well, who are you? Do you think that you're more important than Abraham? And that's one of many such questions in the Gospel of John. Who do you think you are? Who are you saying that you are? Are you, you know, the, the Samaritan woman asks him, are you more important than our father Jacob who built this well? Mm -hmm. Right, that's a common question in the Gospel of John. Who do I you say Jesus that you are? I think Jesus invited it. I think he had a right. manner that invited it. And John was salient to pick out those particular stories because that's also the point of his gospel. And uh, then now I'm trying to remember here, my, my memory is failing me, though, isn't it in Matthew where Jesus turns it around and says, who do men say that I am? Yes. Who do you say that I am? Yes. So he's all asking that question too. So anyway, go Although ahead. seemingly in a moment of sort of honesty and vulnerability with his disciples in, in a certain sense, right? When, when he when he asked the question. But in this heated debate with yeah. about being children of God and children of Abraham or children of God through the one true son, um, you know, Jesus said, you know, who do you say that, are you more important than Abraham? And he says, Abraham looked forward to seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Right. And they're like, what? You're not even 50 years old. And you think that you saw Abraham. And then he mm -hmm. says, assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, Ego a me. And I'm pretty sure that you know your Greek well enough that ego a me is like I am or I am he or it's me. Right. You can it, you can translate it that way. I think when Jesus walks on the water, he says, Fear not, you know, it is I. I think he's just saying, Hey guys, you know, chill. A self-identity self statement. Right. right. Chill. It's it's me, it's not a ghost or whatever. That's and, dynamic equivalent. And, and, and 10 verses later, the blind man, right? The, the Pharisees are looking around, where's the blind man? Where's the guy who was healed, who was born blind, who's been healed? And the guy says, ego a me, right? Exact same, exact I am, same group. We would say it, I am he. Or it's me, or I'm the one, or it I'm is that I. guy. Yeah. Like my mom like taught me, you know, when, when you answer the phone and someone asks for you, you say, um, this is he. Right. right. Uh, you know, right. It, it's it's self-identity is a weird grammatical construction. But uh, so what I think that Jesus is doing is that he's just reiterating his self-identity as the one that Abraham looked forward to, as opposed to invoking the divine name. Now, the before Abraham was part. That is an interesting question. So I so. One thing that I think is interesting is that this argument that Jesus is invoking the divine name there is not in the church fathers. You can't, I, I'm not quite sure when this argument originated, I think in the 18th or 19th century. 
but you don't find any of the church fathers, even the Greek speaking ones making the argument from divine name identity, but a lot of them will use this passage to talk about whether or not Jesus pre-existed in some sense. Arian Which you don't believe either. So I don't believe that either. So I think that in a weird sort of way, the passage is already kind of a little bit weird in time in that Abraham looked forward to Jesus's day, right? past tense. Abraham saw it and was glad. So in what sense did Abraham see Jesus's day in some sort of like prophetic future, right? Like, you know, how did you, how did Abraham see the day of the Messiah, some sort of prophetic revelation or something like that? And that it's like Jesus is saying that even back then, I was in a sense Abraham's Messiah in, in this sort of weird dischronological prophetic future sense. Yeah, but he says before. He doesn't even say when Abraham was. So I hear what you're saying, but I I will also- I'm pushing you, I'm pushing you. I I think that's fine. So I think that I will say that a lot of people Mott and Bailey me this on on this one, where they start out with divine name and then switch to pre-existence, which I think the pre-existence is actually a much easier thing to make. I will say that this is one of the passages that I think I can mostly explain, but it's a little bit different and maybe we're not fully understanding what Jesus says. Well, you know what's going to happen next? You're going to become an Aryan. Yeah, well, fair enough. Because um, they believed in pre-existence, but not in divinity. And honestly, so what I would say about the Gospel of John is I'm that, not recommending that, by the way. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, well, what I'm about to say might give you more goosebumps. I think that the... There, if you were to say which of the Christologies fit the Gospel of John best, I would say that Arianism probably does. And so this is, so one thing that makes me think that Arianism fits the Gospel of John best, or at least some form of subordinationism, is that Jesus constantly in the Gospel of John is talking about he's derived everything from the Father. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. he's derived his authority from the Father, his ability to judge from the Father, sure. his teachings from the Father, his actions mm-hmm. from the Father, his works from the Father. The Father's mm-hmm. greater than me, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And and you know, Jesus says, you know, uh, this is eternal life that you may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You know, yeah, Dale Tuggy loves that one. Yeah, well, Dale Tuggy does love that one. Um, <laughs> so, and honestly, so what keeps me from being an Arian is the other books of the New Testament. And this is where my argument that if we assume that the Gospels are portraying the same Jesus, that it seems like the other ones, I would say if I had to like give something like probability weights to like, say, a Trinitarian Christology, an Arian Christology, and a Biblical Unitarian Christology, I would, for just the Gospel of John alone, I would say that Arianism might win with like 50 or 60 percent of the vote and that biblical Unitarianism and Trinitarianism might split the last piece of the pie. But that like if you like look at the book of Acts and you did that same thing, well, then like biblical Unitarianism steals the cake. And that if you look at the rest of the books together, I think that's what yields the understanding of a better biblical Unitarian interpretation of John. It's interesting. You know, the book of Acts is not, in my opinion, heavily theological. Fair enough. Um, I don't think there's anything in it that contradicts any other theology, but um, there's a a book by a guy named uh, Green Armitage about John, and I, I actually am dedicating my coming book to him, but he also has one about Luke. It's not quite as 
amazing and great. It's the one about John, but it's also pretty good. I went ahead and I bought it, you know, used. And one of the interesting things he says is he doesn't think Luke was as interested in theology as Paul was. And, and that, that in a sense, they're working together. You know, it's Luke is the practical man and Paul is the theologian. You mm -hmm. know, and one of the ways that I, I know we're getting off topic, but I no, think how this is that in Acts, he never mentions the epistles. If he was really accompanying Paul, he must have known Paul was writing the epistles, but he doesn't even seem to have read them. I mean, this is what gives rise to some of the alleged contradictions between Acts and the epistles. There's very strong independence there, actually, um, but he knows what Paul is doing. And so mm -hmm. I think that might account in part for what you're seeing there is that lack of emphasis upon uh any kind of heavy metaphysics. I don't yeah, think but, but like the mind. speeches of Peter and stuff like that are, you know, him going around and preaching the gospel, like, you know, on the Pentecost speech and, and some it's of those very other early, speeches. Yes. Right. And so those ones are, you know, relatively theological and are communicating theological ideas. And like when you look at the like Honestly, I think the strongest argument for biblical Unitarianism is the speeches and acts, which for, you know, seem to basically just seem like there's God, he sent a human being, it's Jesus Christ, here he is, and now Jesus has been exalted into the heavens with God, right, is, you know. Do you think that the Pauline epistles are uh, authentic? Yes. Yes, I would be fine saying, you know, maybe I sometimes I wonder about like, I don't know, Second Timothy or whatever, but I'm, I'm fine for the most part saying that the Pauline epistles are authentic. Because that should certainly inform your understanding of Paul's speeches in Acts. Right. That, you know, if Paul doesn't go into Christology, that certainly isn't because he doesn't have it. He just apparently right. wasn't going into it very much in those particular mm -hmm. uh, incidents because we know that Paul has this this Christology that he talks and, about. A lot. And another thing that, uh, that I haven't mentioned that I think honestly affects my reading of John is the book of Revelation. Um, I will assume that the two Johns are the same, that they're the same author mm -hmm. between Revelation and, and the gospel. And I think that the first five chapters of the book of Revelation are also very theological, very Christologically focused, and very lean heavily in the direction of of a human you know jesus unitarianism exalted mm -hmm. into the wow. heavens Boy, I, I, I disagree i mean especially because he was a jew you know that's that's where i really a, a jew is really careful about whom he worships you know he doesn't fall mm -hmm. down at his feet as one dead and in revelation you even have that contrast where he uh the the uh angel says see you do it not I am a servant like to yourself. So th there's some, some people you worship and some, you know, you right. don't worship and, anybody who's not God, you know? And I think that one of the weird things about Christianity was exalting a human to a higher and newer place than any human had been exalted. I do think that that was part of the, what you might say, the Christological innovation or something of the early Christian community. And I think sometimes biblical Unitarians get underestimated for exactly how high of a Christology that we have, because uh, uh, there's really no other way to describe what we think Jesus is now, except divine in some sense, depending on how you define divine. Yeah, I mean, because, but that ends up then being in very great tension with Judaism, I believe. Well, so I think that 
the way that so well i mean trinitarianism is in way greater tension with judaism than than biblical unitarianism but i i, I would agree. say <laughs> that the the antecedent the the story that i point to a lot so in at the end of the book of first chronicles right Dave, king david is passing on the throne to solomon and there he the like all all of the the assembly of israel is gathered and it says that they bow down and worship God, Yahweh, and the king. And that there's this sense that the king is sort of like underneath and that God is the authority and power behind the throne. And that worship is sort of directed to both of them simultaneously. Like the king is the visible manifestation, but he's not God himself, but there's God sort of above him that's giving him his glory and is the, the, you know, the source of his authority and righteousness. And I think that is sort of the antecedent image of the, the image in, in Revelation of bowing down before God and the Lamb. I'd have, to, I'd have to read that passage and see if it just means, you know, bowed. You know, well, if I would that, take it just the, to mean the physical act you know that's the tricky thing about that word meaning. is in greek and and hebrew bow down and worship are the same word right, right. it's right. it's a physical act and a religious act at the same time and that's part of where this is tricky and sometimes i think we make a distinction where there actually wasn't one that that bowing down and worshiping was sort part of that same sort of religious act well, as a Protestant, I mean, I, in a sense, I understand that because, you know, when people talk about praying to Mary, you know, the, the hairs on the back of my neck start rising, you know, I'm like, oh, I want to watch that, you know. Um, but I think the Jews, even more than modern Protestants, were uh, pretty careful. And I think, you know, that's part of maybe where we are also going to disagree that they, they made that distinction. Um, going back to John 8, 58, why do you think they tried to stone Jesus? Um, I think that there are multiple explanations. Well, first off, Jesus gets attempted to be stoned in the Gospel of John a couple times. Correct. Seemingly sometimes for just claiming to be the Son of God, right? That seemed to be a stonable. I think, I think sometimes that we think that part of the argument behind this is that the Jews always did things in the Gospel of John for just reasons. And I think that part of the image is that they weren't always trying to stone him for fair reasons. Like, and so sometimes he gets attempted to be stoned for just saying that he's the son of God, sometimes seemingly for just claiming to be the Messiah. And then- There's only two times in John that, he, that they try to stone him. Or what about, maybe stoning, but there's also the slipping through the crowds, right? Because the crowd's getting mad at him. I feel like that happens more than just twice. Yep. Just twice in John. You may be confusing it with Luke where they try to throw him off a hill. Fair enough. All right. So in, what, in Luke, what's they try the... to throw him off the hill in Nazareth. It's because he's he, ins, he sort of insults them by saying it's something about Elijah, um, something about Elijah going to the widow who was not Jewish. It's it's almost like a racial insult that you know the Gentiles might have more faith or that kind of thing, and they get really ticked off and they try to throw him off a hill, and he he gets away. In John, it's twice, and both of the times are times that a Trinitarian will argue are places where he's made a claim to God. It's the, it's the 8.58 well, so, and 
So I will say that in John 10, it does seem that that's what the Jews hear him to say. I'll, I'll go back and finish. I will address yeah, yeah. your question about John 8. But in John 10, I do think that they misunderstood him as a claim to deity and that he corrects them afterwards. Yeah. Well, and they say, what, they said, they you being a man, make yourself equal to God. They're like super explicit. Right. And then he seemingly backs it off, right? That, that, that's what I think that, well, what does he say in the next dialogue? He says, first off, in the Old Testament, some humans get called gods, right? And then he quotes that verse. And, and you know, if 82. those to whom the word of God came can be called, what is it that I'm saying that I'm the son of God, right? So he's clarifying. Sometimes humans can be called God. I'm not calling myself God. I'm calling myself the son of God. And I'm doing the works that you see me doing from the father, right? And I don't view that as backing it off, but I mean, he does, he does say, him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you know, can he not say, I am the son of God? Interestingly, though, as you were noting just a moment ago, they will sometimes say, you know, are you the, I, I believe the, um, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed, is the question that he's asked in one of the synoptics as to whether he's blaspheming. I would take that to mean that he is, in a sense, invested the phrase son of God by all the different things he's been doing with a meaning that is offensive to Jewish sensibilities. So I don't actually think they misunderstand him there. I think they do understand him. I think um, sometimes it's also the claim that it's he that is the son of God, that, that, is, that they think it's perhaps improper of him because they don't yet believe him, right? I, I think that- Yeah, that like, I really disagree with because blasphemy is a different thing. That, I was just thinking about this yesterday. I, was having, I thought this might come up tonight. So suppose somebody told me that Sun Myung Moon was uh, God, uh, you know, God incarnate uh, or the incarnate son of God in the same way that Jesus was. And I'm like, that's really bad, dude. You know, that's blasphemy or whatever. What do I mean by saying it's blasphemy? I don't mean, well, yeah, there, there, there could be some other incarnate son of God, just like Jesus. I just don't happen to think Reverend Moon is. No, if I call it blasphemy, what I'm saying is you're making some kind of category error about the nature of God. It's, it's like nobody else, Jesus is unique. He's the unique son. So it's blasphemy to say that Moon is also the son in the same sense. So I think that the Jews similarly, when they say something's blasphemy, I don't think they just mean, well, somebody someday is gonna be what you're saying. Well, we just so, don't happen to think you're it because then they wouldn't call it blasphemy. They would just say, you know, you're mistaken or something. So here, here's what I would say is the problem of going too far in that direction is then you get a Messiah that was unrecognizable to the Jews. And while to some degree, certainly a crucified Messiah was surprising, upsetting, disappointing, what have you, as opposed to sort of just a politically triumphant Messiah, which might've been the more typical expectation. I don't think there were any Jews that expected the Messiah to be God. I and would agree if, with you. I agree and, with you. And so then if you get yourself in the situation where th the Messiah has to be a blasphemer in order to be true, then you've gotten yourself in a very weird situation, right? Do you I didn't see say he has to that? be a blasphemer to be true. I just say, I think he was God. Well, so that you're getting, you're getting yourself into a situation where he will have to be perceived to be a blasphemer in order to be the Messiah. And that seems weird, right? Do you see what I'm saying? 
right? Like if you're well, saying I, that I the Messiah. Known, I wouldn't have known he was going to be God either. I mean, if I were a Jew, I, I would have had to have learned that, right? Right. And that's why I'm saying this is so weird is that if you think that it turns out that the Messiah is God, mm -hmm. then his own self-identity would only be able to be interpreted as blasphemy. And that just doesn't seem right, that well, God would throw such a weird, almost self-contradictory, self you know, uh, curveball. curveball. Yeah. Okay, well, that's, okay, that's a very interesting question. So let me address it. That wasn't on our list, but actually I've been thinking a lot about that recently. So okay. um, I'm not saying that they were right to think that the Messiah wasn't going to be God. I just think they did think that he wasn't going to be God. And it wasn't a, stu wasn't a stupid thing for them to think. I mean, it was Fair sort enough. of understandable. Now, someone like my friend Jonathan McClatchy, I mean, he's going to watch this. He's going he's gonna to message me. He's going to be like, why didn't you say this? Why didn't you oh, say this? Okay. We, no, always, but, we always Monday morning quarterback ourselves. Right. No, no. Sure. Jonathan's great. Jonathan's a great guy. He, but he's got all of these wonderful things in the Old Testament that, you know, some of them I agree with, some of them I don't agree with, et cetera, but that are like hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament hints of the deity of the messiah in the old testament and so forth and i think some of those may really be there okay um thy throne O god is forever and ever and you know there, things like that you know um therefore and, god your god anyway <laughs> okay all right so you know there's the there are these hints and glimpses of the deity of the messiah but i think god kept it a little bit vague he kept it because he was trying to teach them monotheism. That was the, the danger, right, was polytheism and idolatry and so forth. So he didn't want to teach um, binatarianism or something. And that's where I, I disagree with Michael Heiser, um, who thinks there was a Jewish binatarianism. Mm. Um, but but he, did, he did drop in these hints that then the new Christians would be able to latch on to and use, and I, and I think they did, okay? But it was going to be somewhat of a shock, and I think that I think that absolute monotheism had, in a sense, hardened. By the time you got to the time of Jesus, it was like they had, they had, they had clarified their theology. They were like, no way that the Messiah, he's a man. He's born to a particular woman at a particular time. There's no way that he is going to be God. And of course, you know, God knows everything. He knew that. He knew mm -hmm. that that was how those people at that time were going to respond, most of them, okay? So what does Jesus do? Well, he performs miracles. He continually asks people, who am I, who am I, who am I? He pushes. He takes this incredibly high-handed approach to things. I mean, uh, Tom Gilson has just written an interesting book recently, Too Good to be False, and that's part of what he's emphasizing there is that the extreme self-confidence that Jesus had um, and projected in the way he taught with authority. So he does all of this. He's incredibly egotistical, you could almost say. And this is where C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic, or Lord trilemma, which I'm sure you disagree with, I think works really well because I, I just, uh, he turns it into a liar, lunatic, or God. I'm fine with liar, lunatic, or Lord. I see. Right, right, right. So, but, uh, you know, part of why Jesus would be a lunatic 
is because he's making he's claiming to be god and that's what's like whoa you know whoa you know then you're a lunatic if you're wrong right if you really believe that um so okay and he draws them along somewhat gradually he draws even his own disciples along. In fact, I think sometimes his disciples may not have believed that Jesus was God during his lifetime because they didn't want to accuse him of blasphemy. I think they may have been trying to be charitable in a Interesting. sense to him. Interesting. Okay, and that's why they don't understand. And I so think, that, I mean, I would agree that the disciples didn't understand the full significance of Jesus and the full nature of his identity during his lifetime. I don't I'm, think they I'm totally did. fine with that. And then the he rises from the dead. And so then at this point, it's like, we've got to accept something new here, something that may have been previously offensive to us. Okay. And of course, then they're kind of working on developing and working out how, what this is. And this is where I think Peter's speech on Pentecost comes in. He's saying what he knows at that time. That's only 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead. And I think he was inspired by the Holy Ghost. They had, you know, the Holy Ghost had just come. He just came that day, you know. But um, at the same time, I mean, you got to give him a little time. You know, like so, I'm not going so to hold it to be like interesting or something. So but give him you, a year maybe? Can you give him a year to figure this stuff out? So you, know? so you do, you would hold to some amount of development in Christology over time, I guess. But it's like, like a little time. A little bit. couple years, but not maybe a year. Greater maybe. than 40 days. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. More than, greater than 40 days, less than three years you know or something so, you know, yeah that is interesting all right so in their minds but not that it wasn't true i mean right. see to my mind jesus said it clearly enough see i really do think so, he was invoking the divine and, name, and but you I think, think john were, 8 58 is is really absolutely. your your nail it down that's absolutely. interesting it, so i mean but we do that with our friends all the time don't we he can't really have meant that well, like if you but, love somebody and he says something that but, on social so, media that sounds right. outrageous, you know. All right, so let's go back to John fifty-eight. I feel like <laughs> or eight fifty-eight. Excuse me. I think I I think you actually pointed me in a question that I never circled back to. Okay, so, go ahead. Some others. So like John eight. Um, I I looked it up now. All right, John eight forty-two. Jesus said to them, "If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God." and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand? Oh, I'm getting old. That's not what I was looking for. I was backing up to verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who is, so they're killing him, even trying to kill him even before he says the, the before Abraham was. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Like Jesus in that sentence says, I'm a man, I'm an anthropos, who heard truth from God, and in the whole dialogue, God and the Father are just interchangeable. And, and that if God were your father, right? He's identifying their God, the monotheistic God of the Jews, with his father. And yeah. it's just a one-to-one -one equivalence, right? You can, in the whole dialogue, if you were to swap the father for God or God the father for God or the father for God, right? They're completely interchangeable words that suggest that they have the same meaning in the context. So the monotheistic God of the Jews is just God's father, or Jesus's father, excuse me. And, and then he- Well, he was a man. 
I mean, Trinitarians right. do believe I, you. I know, man. but but it is interesting that he identifies him as itself as a man sent from God. Like he doesn't he doesn't even say God the Father. He just says God as if God is a completely separate character. And and they're not even arguing over the identity of God. They're arguing over how what does it mean to be a child of God? Does it mean to be a child of Abraham? or adopted through the son. And even that argument doesn't work if Jesus just is God. I, I feel like the whole, the whole thrust of the passage loses its narrative oomph if Jesus just is God in some, you know, tri-personal sense. Or well, not that Jesus is tri-personal, but you know what I mean. No, no, no. Well, so first of all, he's trying to accuse them of, of being bad, right? Yes. Okay, yes. that's it's pretty clear. All right. Yes. Now, um, and I don't know that every person in that crowd is seeking to kill him. Um, you know, and, and they even challenge him on that. They're like, who's seeking to kill you? What are you talking about? You know, but the leaders are trying to kill him and he knows yeah. that. And that's jealousy and envy and all their other rationalizations that they're using and whatnot. And sure. some of the people there may be in cahoots with them. Right. Sure, sure, all right. Sure. So from their perspective, at least. He is a man sent from God, right? Yes. He's at least a prophet. He's at least a good man. They say he went about doing good and so forth. And he's like, that is the work of the devil. You know, like we would say, y'all are evil. Right? Mm -hmm. that's, what, yeah. that's what we would say. So I think at this point of the conversation, he hasn't yet gotten to his before Abraham was I am statement. Sure. He's making a particular type of argument to the effect that this is really bad. Somebody who was as a prophet sent from God, you shouldn't be trying to kill. And you, you find Jesus doing that. Which of the prophets have you not killed? He says, that's yes. in the synoptics, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. Um, that's also a good correspondence, but yes. Uh, you know, he'll, he'll say, uh, it cannot be, I must travel on today and tomorrow, for it cannot be that a prophet would die outside of Jerusalem. Just this bitter statement mm -hmm. that he makes. And so from their perspective, he is at least a prophet. And, and I would say Jesus was a prophet, but not a merely, you know, he was also God incarnate, you know. So I think that's just his way of trying to uh, show the evil of attempting to kill him. Now, well, as far as but part of it is, is the, the child metaphor, right? You know, they're saying we're child of Abraham and Abraham is therefore a connection to God. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus saying, no, you're actually children of your father, Satan, right? So there's right. this father-child right. relationship. And then he's like inserting himself and trying to explain, no, to really be a child of God, you have to come through the son who is me and I'm, you know, the true son in the house. And that's why I can mm -hmm. set the slaves free so that they can become real members of the household. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of that Greco-Roman era, if you know. The son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Right. Right. And, and it's like that same sort of connection where, you know, God, Abraham, children, God, Jesus, children, as opposed to being Satan children. Right. And, and the metaphor just seems to break down and lose one of its links in the chain if, if Jesus just sort of is that God. Well, I, and I know I mean, that even within the Trinity, a, he's the son of the father. It's a mystery, right? I mean, nobody, I'm not yeah. going to claim to sit here and explain the Trinity to you in words well, of one syllable. But um, he, okay, so he isn't the father, he's the son. Right. Well, that I will agree with. Trinitarian, but I mean, Trinitarian doctrine is that the father is not the son, but both the father and the son are God. I mean, that just is Trinitarian doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so he's 
he's bringing them into this relationship with him in in terms that i mean you're going to have to explain it in terms that are understandable as far as the human mind is able to understand it now god you know the body of jesus was made out of atoms you know in that sense in the in the incarnation he was a creature okay um and he had a human soul and so forth presumably you know um so he was in that sense a creature but he was he was also the creator he was also god so his ultimate total being was not uh um, trinitarian doctrine derived from god in the sense of being created he was not a created being in that sense but qua incarnate that that was created okay so you've got all these different things playing around and he's not trying to explain all of that to them mm-hmm. he can't even he can only barely begin right he can only barely begin to explain all of that to them right well, and, and he's going to do, do that with that shocking statement before abraham was i am you know? so so all right two things one this might be too big of a tangent to maybe i should skip but you earlier in our conversation we talked about simple and complex models right mm-hmm. and that all all things equal a simple model is is to be preferred over a complex mm-hmm. model mm-hmm. and i feel like this is an argument that i've been i've tried to communicate before but trinitarians often don't hear me because they perhaps don't know statistics well enough mm-hmm. but you do and that i feel that there's something of that argument to be made here that biblical unitarianism is a very simple model it it, it really doesn't have very many moving parts there's one god it's just the same god it always was Jesus is a man. There's no two natures. There's no three hypotheses and one usia or any of these mm-hmm. sorts of things. One, one, hy- one divine hypothesis, one usia, one human being, one nature. And, and that, that if it can make sense of the data, even approximately as well as a more complex model that allows there to be a human being and a human soul and a human hypothesis, but there's also this divine hypothesis mm-hmm. and there's this person. It's like, well, you know, obviously a complex model like that could be made to fit any uh, all sorts of data, but it, but it has the cost of its complexity to it. Mm-hmm. I I I agree with you there, but I think that that it doesn't fit the data <laughs> approximately as well. And I really do lean on the fact that Jesus' first followers were all Jews, and yes. that they're not they're not going to worship somebody. I mean, worship, worship. I'm fine with you. I I understand the distinction. I'm fine and agree with you that the earliest Christians worship, worshiped Jesus. And I will even say that I worship, worship Jesus in that sense. And that that was a little bit startling uh, to, to the Jews. I'm willing to go some amount of direction with you in that was something that would have caused some Jews discomfort, but obviously not enough discomfort to prevent it from happening and sort of springing forth in the early Christian circles. Yes, Whereas I, actually, and, and I think like you can get that out of the Acts speech. How about, so at the Pentecost speech, I think that you can get the idea of Jesus as someone now worthy of worship, even in the earliest, absolute earliest of Christology. It's, it's quite high but and worthy of but he doesn't he doesn't say you know he says neither is there salvation in any other there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved and we're moving there we're moving there fast that's why any development that i'm going to have it's going to be short it's going to be a very short time period 
uh, in the mind of, let's say, Peter as an individual. And other mm -hmm. people may have moved faster. John may have, may have already been there you know, at this point. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't have a speech from him on the day of Pentecost, you know. But um, I actually would, I would go so far as to say that if you worship, worship somebody and he's a man, you're committing idolatry. I mean, he's just a man. I mean, that's bad. Well, so I, I mean, hear so what that's, you're that's saying. That's like why we have to I hear, right. I hear what you're saying. And I and think then actually there's... The, the apostles would have agreed with me. And so that's part of why I'm a Trinitarian. So, so that's where I would point again to Revelation chapters four and five, which I think are incredibly important for this. So just like brief synopsis, you know, after the letters to the seven churches, then, then uh, John goes in and he sees the throne room scene mm -hmm. and there's God on the throne, right? And there's, you know, all the gemstones and thunder and lightning and rainbows and stuff. And there's the, 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 the four beasts and then there's all the elders, right? and they're worshiping, and they're saying, holy, 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 you know, etc. Yeah. right? Yeah. And seemingly Jesus isn't there. I think that that one God is just God the Father, because in chapter 5, then they say, you know, oh, there's the scroll that can't be opened. And then right? they say, wait worthy? a minute, where the, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, which, you know, is pretty exhaustive, was found who is worthy to open the scroll. So it's like, so where's Jesus at that point in time? And then it says, you know, behold, the, the root the of the, the lion of Judah, the, lion, the root of Jesse has triumphed. And then Jesus, you know, now as a lamb that was slain, seemingly in his own blood, now exalt, exalted into the throne room of heaven, is then brought onto the throne at the right hand inside the circle of the elders and the circle of the beasts. And then they bow down again. And they sing a new song. And Worthy they is sing, the lamb that was slain to receive or, power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. Bless right. Him. Because you purchased for your God the nation and the tribes and the et cetera, et cetera. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and then they worship God and the lamb, seemingly together, the beasts and the elders, et cetera. So there is this like this regime altering thing that requires a new song to be sung in heaven. And the lamb isn't worshiped because he is God himself. He's worshiped because of what he accomplished for God. And, and well, that's, those are hardly mutually exclusive. I mean, well, it, but it does say your God, like that, that just doesn't seem to me like you would say something about the heavenly exalted Jesus. If he is God, God's going to have, have, I would have to check God. the, the Fair enough. text on that, you know, um, but your, uh, my God and your God actually occurs in Jesus' words to Mary Magdalene. I yeah. ascend to my father my and your and father, your... my God and your God. So um, has, to redeem, has to redeemed us to God by his blood is the King James. I'd have to check the, uh, I'd have to check the, you know, sure. your, but, but we do have another instance that I just handed you of Jesus referring to my God. The interesting thing yeah. there, as Tom has noted, is that he distinguishes the sense in which he's his God from the sense in which he's her God, which I find interesting right there. The sense in which he's his father from her father. He's, he doesn't say our father. Notice that he never says our father except when he's teaching them to pray. He says, mm -hmm. when you pray, pray our father. Jesus calls God father when he speaks to him. And then there's this one place where he says, my father, 
and your father. It, it is an interesting, I wouldn't want to lean too much on it, but it is an interesting distinction that no, you make. And, and I would, and I actually agree with you. I, I think that it's sort of like, there is a sense in which until Jesus's mission is accomplished, only Jesus is the rightful son, right? And it's similar to that John 8 passage where, where Jesus being the only begotten son of God is uniquely in the household family of God until he can sort of liberate and join to himself all of the captives whom he sets free. Do so, you also, I mean, this is taking us kind of a field, but do you also try to reinterpret similarly all of the Pauline Christology as well? Well, honestly, I think the Pauline Christology is really easy. I, I think that one leans oh very gosh. heavily in favor of, of Unitarianism. Oh! I, I know, I know. Okay, let's but, not go there, let's not go there. All right. <laughs> I, I have a whole other video where I debated Chris Date about Philippians 2. I didn't watch it, but time. I saw that. I mean, yeah, yeah. giving him a th name that is above every name. So, I mean, when we get into all of that, given, that's where though, I, given. A, the name. You, a Jew says yeah. the name. What is Right. And so, honestly, I think that's part of what's going on is that they think, like, imagine that there's a father who's, a, there's a guy who's in charge of a corporation, right? And there's this hierarchy underneath him, right? And, and there's some rebellious part of the company that's like trying to usurp him or something like that. And the, the, this guy is like the president and CEO of the company. And then his son suddenly, I don't know, finishes business school. And then he promotes his son to president of the company or something like that and says, now all of you people have to submit and some part of the company doesn't I'm want to I'm retiring. I'm <laughs> retiring or, you know, whatever. And, and, and so he's giving his son who has his same last name, right? His names and titles such that the reverence that was previously due to him alone is now due to him and his son, right? He's including him in the, the C-suite for the first time or something. I think something like that is in a royal, you know, heavenly sense is the metaphor that that is being communicated there in Philippians 2 and Revelation and other places. That and, and th would make Christianity so formally incompatible with the Old Testament that I think you'd have a major problem because God, as he presents himself, never can communicate. I mean, it, it's a metaphysical matter as to whom you should give that kind of all-encompassing, you know, give yourself to this person all, you know, your whole life, give your whole life to this person and so forth, worship in that sense. To do that to anyone who is not God is idolatry. And that's a consistent biblical teaching. And the, in, in a sense, the simplicity of Trinitarianism consists in the fact that it's consistent on that point, that you, 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 may not worship worship to use our phrase anyone but god yeah god alone I mean, and him only shalt thou worship you know i i've talked with a decent number of jews and they they often tend to find my christology way less blasphemous than the trinitarian version even if they do tend to disagree with me on some points like i i think that you either need to redefine worship or you need to redefine god and that I think from the original Jewish setting, because I think you would agree with me, I think you've already said this, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, that Old Testament Jews and even the Jews in Jesus's time were not Trinitarians, nor were they expecting to be. And so you say that Christianity introduces a surprise in the Godhead, 
and I'm saying that Christianity didn't introduce a surprise in the Godhead. Godhead's still the same guy, but it introduces a surprise in the heavenly hierarchy and the worship by which we give to God. And I think that God is able to exalt a person, a human being, his own special son, to that place. And that is, in fact, the ultimate thing that needs to be recognized, or now you are no longer on God's side. You're like part of that rebellious part of the company hierarchy that's still not recognizing the promotion of the son to the presidency. Or then something. might he do that with you? Well, I am not the only begotten son. So yeah, well, there why, is, why was there only one? I mean... But it makes that that I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but you know, like the Gospel of John, like I, I heard you talk about this in one of the videos that I was listening to you either yesterday or something recently, that there are a lot of things in the Gospel of John where God gives something to Jesus and then Jesus gives it to everybody, right? You know, uh like you, you were referencing, you know, John 10 where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. But in the high priestly prayer, he prays that his followers would be one with him just as they're one with God, just as he is, right? There's this oneness of God, which Jesus already had during his lifetime, which he now wants to bequeath to his followers. There's, he prays that they will be glorified with the glory that you've been given me, right? He, you know, we get to be sons because he's sons, right? There's all of these things that God gives something to Jesus and then Jesus bequeaths it to the rest of the Christians, like the Holy Spirit, you know, sure. being another perfectly good example. That, that metaphor seems to be just over and over again in the Gospel of John. And to me, it just, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't have the full oomph from the Trinitarian perspective where it's like, well, it's kind of like the Father gave it the Son, but God always had it. It's like, uh, it, it, Well, the Son is incarnate. I mean, we, you know, we do have to take the incarnation very seriously there. That's not happening like from up in heaven right that's happening is after he's already on earth that the that he starts talking he's talking that way you know we don't find that with respect to the sun if i can put it this way aside from the incarnation so mm -hmm. i think it makes more sense under those circumstances because he's actually walking on earth he's actually walking with them and walking with us and it's in that context that he's able to give those things to us and, you know, it's like, I'm close to being able to agree with that, if depending on what you mean by incarnation, I guess. And, and that's well, right. I mean, in a sense, you don't believe in the incarnation. Well, I believe in the incarnation, like Jesus being the final coming of something that had been prophesied or like, you know, uh, like prophecy coming to fulfillment or God's plan coming into action or something like that. Like, and yeah, that's a totally different meaning, you know, right. well, it's a very, enough. very different meaning. I, I do want to just be very clear, though, when I say that I don't think the Jews of the Old Testament were Trinitarians, I don't mean that the Old Testament contradicts the new. I think that there, the Old Testament is a very rich document, and I think there, it's got this language that you can, in places, take to be a hint or a foreshadowing of the, the Trinity or of the coming of the, the, the Son, the exalted Son or that kind of thing. But I just don't think that's how they took it. 
So, you know, I'm not trying to say the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament are different or New Testament contradicts the Old Testament or something, you know, simplistic like that. I just think they, they didn't fully understand it. Maybe Abraham understood it when he went to heaven. In fact, I think he did. And I know this is an unusual interpretation, but when Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad. I tend to think he's referring to Abraham in heaven. Hmm. I tend to think he's referring to like when Abraham was in heaven, he came to understand about the, the Trinity and he came to understand about, you know, that God, God's plan for salvation and how his descendant was going to save people from their sins and all that. And he was just absolutely thrilled because he had all this enlightenment, you know, because he's gone to heaven. And in, I mean, he hadn't been resurrected yet, but his soul went to heaven, you know, and that he really had Jesus, you know, the son really had seen Abraham, you know, and that's why when they say, you know, how have you seen Abraham? And he's like, oh man, I've been around all along. You know, <laughs> and that, that when he says before Abraham was, I am among other things, he is referring to that preexistence that enabled Abraham to rejoice to see his day. I, I I've believe actually that's never a heard that. I've, I, the, I've never heard that before. Yeah. E even most Trinitarians, I think, think that that's some sort of prophetic future reference, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, I could get into my theology of where I think dead people are and where Abraham is, but that, that right, right, right. You know, we don't okay, have enough. Okay, well, we should probably be moving, <laughs> we, we should probably be wrapping up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I see what you're saying, and this John eight fifty eight thing, man. I, I, this will always be with me, I guess. Um, I, I oh, just. Oh, good. <laughs> you know, I'm. I, I mean, I really am trying to wrestle with this. You know, I, I don't have conversations with people like you just, uh, you know, to pat myself on the back. I, I, I do to be poked and challenged, and I appreciate that. I, I still, I guess my question is, is that it doesn't even seem to make sense gr grammatically in the sentence if it's just invoking the divine name. It doesn't really seem to be making a coherent point in the flow of the story if jesus is you know the last thing he said abraham looked forward to my day he saw it and was glad and they're like you know you're not 50 years old have you seen abraham before abraham was boom god name it's like i i don't it doesn't even seem to it doesn't even seem to have like a grammatical flow to it huh. but but if he's saying i am he and right, and other places in the gospel, he uses ego me, I am he, to identify himself as the Messiah. Sometimes, like on the boat, he identifies it as himself. When he's talking to the Samaritan woman, I who am speaking to you, I am he. Right, she just right? said, when the Messiah comes. Messiah when the Messiah comes. And then he says, I think even in the Greek, it's ego me first, I am he, me speaking to you. Or, I, you know, I who speak to you, yeah. Yeah, and so it's it's previously that same grammatical phrase has been used in the Gospels as a self-identity as the Messiah. I I think that's just what he's doing, and I don't quite see how the before Abraham was God name even flows. And, huh. and so maybe okay. if you could help clarify that. Yeah, so I, I do want to back up to the one on the boat. I don't think he's identifying himself as the Messiah there. No, I think right. he's I just agree. identifying himself as their friend. Yes. And, not yes. a scary ghost, you know. So anyway, yes. all right. But um, I think it's related to what I just said, that they say he can't have been pre-existent or he can't have been, you know, he can't have seen Abraham. Like, it doesn't make sense. They're, you know, taking him very literally and they're 
Yes. You know, they're like people on Facebook, you know, I mean, they're just like really, <laughs> really bad, you know, yeah. and like, how in the world can you have seen Abraham? Give me a break. You know, you, you're a devil possessed Samaritan, blah, blah, blah. And so he's saying, oh, I'm definitely preexistent. In fact, I'm so much more than preexistent. I'm actually God. So in other words, of course, of course, I could have known Abraham. There's no problem whatsoever with me having seen or known. They said, have you seen Abraham? I think that's what they say. You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? It's like, darn tootin'. You know, of course I've seen Abraham. I've been around all along. And I know you were talking about Mott and Baileying uh, <laughs> with preexistence and, and deity. Well, I think it's a, like an a fortiori. It's uh, so much the more a fortiori, which means so much the more. Okay. Okay. Not only am I pre-existent, so much the more I am Yahweh. Okay. So that's how I have seen Abraham. That's how there is absolutely no problem with my having seen and known Abraham. Okay. So here's what I would say is a problem with that. I mean, Abraham knew God, right? I, I don't think we would deny that Abraham knew God. Abraham spoke with God. Abraham bargained with God for the lives of the mm -hmm. Sodomites, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's a word that probably I shouldn't say on YouTube, ah, but I, I said it in the very literal sense. So inhabitants. <laughs> the inhabitants of Sodom, right? Right. So Abraham knew God. Abraham didn't look forward to God's day, right? Abraham didn't look forward to Yahweh's day or something like that. He already knew God. He's looking forward to the Messiah's day. And that's why it would make sense for Jesus to then self-identify as the Messiah. Because it, you see what I'm saying? But this way, it actually explains the, uh, the, the pre-existence aspect before Abraham was. Of course, he looked forward to him. I mean, as you know, the, the Trinitarian theory, the Orthodox Christian theory, is that the Son eternally is but that Jesus was a man born at a particular time, and that's the mystery of the incarnation. The eternal son became a man at a particular time. So Abraham looks forward to the coming of the, of the Messiah, who also is God. On earth, Abraham didn't know that, of course. All Abraham knew was God told him, uh, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed your mm -hmm. seed will be, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? right so right. he looks forward to some kind of great blessing that his seed is going to bring to... Um, right, to, and, and to the book faith. of Hebrews expands on that and by faith. Right, and, and then there was, I believe, some kind of rabbinic idea that God actually gave him some kind of, you know, vision or something, but that's not actually recorded in... So if we just stick with what's in the Bible, he has this general idea that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then, right, he goes to heaven and... I would theorize, this is speculative, but I would speculate that in heaven, a lot more, he does come to understand a lot more. We hope to understand a lot more when we get to heaven um, and to, to understand things we didn't understand before and understands that it's this actual person who's going to be born, who's going to die for sin and all this great stuff that he's going to do. And I would say understands that he's God. But regardless of whether he understands that he's God, he understands that he's going to come. He hasn't been born yet. And that's, I mean, that's true in human. Humans are in time. 
we humans have to be in time. So he has to look forward to the Messiah, to Jesus as the Messiah. So that explains that part of it. But then how could Jesus himself have seen Abraham? How could Jesus himself have ever literally known Abraham except by reading Although about Although Jesus never says that he saw Abraham. No, he it, says, but they say. They say, but he, yes. How have you uh, seen Abraham? And, and but he, he doesn't. I say to you before Abraham was. So he doesn't say, oh, I never saw Abraham, you know, but he foresaw me or whatever. No, you know, he doesn't correct that at all. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, he's, he's addressing that. That he himself is pre-existent and more than pre-existent. He is, in fact, God. And he, so he comes out and just and, and hits that as the way of explaining how he, a man not yet 50 years old, could have known Abraham and uh, been in any sense acquainted with Abraham more than they were. Sure. And so I could see that compatible also with some form uh, with an Aryan like if you took the divine name out of it, or even Arians might be okay with him invoking the divine name depends on the Arian, but you could imagine, you know, um, Jesus pre-existing, like sort of in the dugout waiting to show up or something like That's that. That's what they're going to think, but I think <laughs> yeah. they're going to have a heck Although, of a Although actually most, most, most Arians thought that the God that, that the Old Testament people interacted with was actually the son and that God was in some sense, the, God the Father was like above that. So they would have said that Jesus was the one that Abraham actually interacted with. Interesting. But, but a, lot of people, a lot of people don't know that about Arians. A yeah, lot of people... I, I had run into that in Milton. Milton is the Arian I'm the most well acquainted with from my-, my Although um, he might be a weird, I'm, like, I'm talking like the second, third, fourth century Arians. Ah, that, okay. uh, I'm, not, I, I'm not an expert on Milton. Um, although I, he sometimes Unitarians claim him. Although sometimes Unitarian means non-preexistence or preexistence. Anyway, so yeah, he would. He believed in preexistence for sure. I think they're going to definitely have a time, a hard time with the divine name. I really so, do. So about the divine name. So in the Septuagint, you know, the divine name when God's talking to Abraham in the bush is longer than just ego a me. It's like. Ego a me ho own or something like that. I am the one who is or I am the being or the living. I am that I am. I am that I am. Right, right. So the the divine name is longer than just I am. Right. And and when like the blind man in the next chapter identifies himself as the blind man or the healed blind man that everyone's looking for, when he says ego I me, it's not like, well, you just committed blasphemy. You know, it's like a perfectly normal Greek phrase. So that's why I feel like text. And that's why I feel like the divine name would be longer I, and and would oh, it would be like before abraham was i am who i am or i am who will be or something like that no but would there's seem no to com- be, yeah it's 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 not the full divine name as you see it in the septuagint i guess i think it's is, a is the very of my weird point. Cons- i think it's a very weird construction well it's a very weird construction the uh, the divine name <laughs> i mean it, it it's it, a weird it, construction i will grant fully well that it's a it, and in fact, it, I've heard people say it doesn't even make grammatical sense in Greek, no matter how you interpret it. It's like almost uh, intentionally agrammatical. But it, it is pretty explicable in those other places. The blind man, we know exactly what he's saying. The context makes it very clear, right? I'm the guy, you know, that you're talking about. Jesus on the water. I am... I'm, it is I, I'm, don't worry, you know, it's me, it me, as they say, you know, right. uh, the person you know, 
right? Uh, to the, the Samaritan woman. 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 Well, I'm the person you just named. You just named the Messiah. I am, I'm the one. I'm him. I'm here. And then by so here, I don't this, think it's nearly as explicable. I really But I don't. think in the last sentence, your father Abraham rejoiced. They would see my day. He saw it and was glad, right? He, that's, that's Jesus' argument for why he's more important than Abraham, right? Like Abraham wouldn't look forward to the day of someone who is beneath him right? I think is basically the logic of it, right? Because he gets accused, are you more important than our father Abraham? So he's explaining how he's actually more important than Abraham, mm -hmm. right? And it's sort of like the idea, you know, surely the lesser is not blessed, or surely the greater is not blessed by the lesser, right? That, mm -hmm. That's somewhere in there, which is also an argument for subordinationism, but a different time. But like, you know, someone wouldn't look forward to someone who is less than them, I mm -hmm. think is the logic of the argument. I can see and, that. And so, I think that Jesus is just identifying himself as the one that Abraham is looking forward to, namely the Messiah. That's and, not nearly as clear. I mean, that's just not clear to me at all. Whereas those other places, it's just immediate. It's like, we know exactly well, I, what he meant by I mean, before, I, before. I'm just uh, referencing the previous sentence that Jesus said. It's not irrelevant to no, the context, but I will agree Abraham that it's was, less I am obvious. He, I am the guy he was looking forward to. I don't know. It just, that's, there's no real question that that's answering. It just, it does not fit the context the same way that those other interpretations fit their context, I would say. Now, is there one other question you want to ask me? Like, I'm here giving you a hard time, which oh. I did not actually come here intending to No, do. that's fine. You know, I don't mind being given a hard time. All right. Well, so let's see here. I'm looking at my question. So you brought this question up earlier. I guess you can go out on this question why do you think, because both you and Dr. Laconia, like, or Lacona, sorry, when, when I listened to a video of him, you know, explaining why are the Gospels different, he spends most of the time talking about why Jesus is God, right? He doesn't even spend that much time talking about why the Gospels are different. And it's as if that's the one thing he is seeking to preserve. And it seems that also when you are talking about what could be lost uh, if the if the reliability and the historical reportage of the Gospels were to be undermined, it seems like one of the things that you're worried about being lost is essentially the deity of Christ. That's one of them. Near the top a lot of, of the list. Too, you know, there's but... a lot of others, but that's near the top of the list. And that's why you don't like a minimal facts uh, argument for the resurrection and other things, because, you know, minimal facts loses a lot of the other facts. And this seems to be on the list of facts that, that you're seeking to preserve. Teaching, I guess, like teachings of Jesus, right? Teachings of Jesus. So, so what, to me, the deity of Jesus in the way that you mean it, as opposed to some sort of, you know, exalted human sort of divinity mm -hmm. by the way that I mean it, it doesn't seem like it loses that much because I've drifted between Unitarian and Trinitarian evangelical churches and like 99% of the time things are fine. And so what exactly is it that you think is being lost mm -hmm. if we were to perhaps undermine in your eyes, you know, the reliability passages like John 8, 58 and other deity of Christ passages? So we definitely want to note that this is a theological question. Yes. We've been discussing a ton of theological questions, not a historical question. Yes. The interesting thing is that you and I both think John 8, 58 is historical. So that's kind of interesting yeah. and recognizably so, which I think Craig Evans questions. I really do think he questions whether Jesus said that in a way you could have recognized, you know, if you'd been there. Um, well, so I'm going to be blunt here. I think y'all are committing idolatry 
Fair enough. So I think what would be lost is a Jesus that we actually should be worshiping. So if Jesus is God, we should be worshiping him in this sense of like committing ourselves completely to him. If he is not God, then I would say we should not be. And there's just no room for middle ground in there. I don't, I don't think at all, theologically. So theologically, what we would lose is a Jesus whom we should be worshiping. And so that the stakes are high. I think this makes the stakes very high uh, in the question. It makes an important question. Then, of course, it gets it combined with a lot of other questions like um, the atonement. And I'm not going to go into that, but like how does the deity of Jesus inform the doctrine of the, the atonement? Um, how does the deity of Jesus inform our answer to the problem of evil? I think there's an interesting connection there with the problem of evil, particularly the uh, emotional or psychological problem of evil, that God was actually there suffering evil himself. He came down among us. Um, and of course, the doctrine of the incarnation itself is a very uh, great and beautiful doctrine that I do not want to be teaching people if it isn't true. You know, if it's true, I want to be teaching it to people. If it's not true, I don't want to be teaching it to people because it's important. So, because um, I think the truth is important. So, for all those reasons, uh, this is this is something we we want to get right. And I do think that Jesus is most explicit about it in John. I do not think there's any contradiction with the synoptics, but I think that reasonable people can debate the synoptic ones a little bit more. Um, I was talking to someone just yesterday and, and he said, well, I think that there's higher Christology in the synoptics than you do. And I said, well, I think that, that there's high Christology in this passage in the synoptics for this reason. And he said, oh no, I, think, I don't think it's for that reason. I think there's high, high Christology in that passage for this other reason. And I said to him, see, the very fact that we, we can debate about this more in the synoptics than in John means that John is a really important part of our data. Um, that if you if you throw it out, I mean, I certainly would not want to be having this debate with you without John 858 as historical, as common ground. You know, if you were here saying, uh, oh, I just, I don't even think that happened. I think that's a Johannine gloss or whatever. You know, my argument would be significantly hampered. Uh, and I'm not saying I couldn't reference places in the synoptics, but this is a, a stronger argument, not because there's any contradiction, but just because John happens to have recorded the places where I think Jesus was the most explicit. So uh, I, want, I want to have those available. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, teaching the truth for truth's sake, understanding the truth for truth's sake, uh, that's, I think, a very good note to end on. So thank you very much, Dr. Lydia McGrew. I really appreciate you coming on.